It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and lest we forget, 77 years ago on this date, people everywhere marked the end of World War II. We'll remember VJ Day the way America did back then with a special broadcast, 14 August, by Norman Corwin, starring Orson Welles. And we've got World War II spy doings from a series called Cloak and Dagger, a western frontier town starring Jeff Chandler, comedy from Fibber McGee and Molly, and from X-1 of all places, plus Dragnet and Gunsmoke. So, it's time to put aside the problems and annoyances of last week, stop worrying for a few hours about the challenges of the week to come, and instead, turn your imagination loose here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. The actor most associated with the role of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator is Bob Bailey, who was in the role for more than five years in the late 1950s. Coming in second in the number of portrayals among the six men who essayed the part on the air was Edmund O'Brien, who also had the biggest career of any of the six. He won an Academy Award, and he was nominated for another. Some of his best screen performances came in the late 1940s and early 50s in such film noir as DOA and White Heat. That made him a logical choice for the tone of the insurance-based radio series, which early on, as we've noted, had a lot more in common with the noir genre than the later episodes did. Here's Mr. O'Brien's first appearance as the man with the action-packed expense account, and the funny thing is... The expense account hardly figures in the script at all. Oh, be sure to listen to the end credits, which list a number of familiar names, including that of another future Oscar winner, Ed Begley Sr. It's an episode usually called The Murder of Loyal B. Martin, and it comes from February 3rd, 1950, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. I'm now for Edmund O'Brien as yours truly... Johnny Dollar. Edmund O'Brien, starring in another adventure of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. At insurance investigation, Johnny Dollar is only an expert. At making out his expense account, he's an absolute genius. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Great Columbian Life Insurance Company. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during the investigation of the circumstances surrounding the murder of your policyholder, Loyal B. Martin, or how to take a vacation in Fairfield County. Expense account item one. $3.20 mileage from Hartford, Connecticut to the country estate of the deceased. I drove up a long cement driveway toward the mausoleum-type manor house. 
There were rolling green lawns liberally sprinkled with statuary. And the thought occurred to me that if he had spent much of his life here, the late Mr. Martin was most fortunate. He'd feel right at home in a cemetery. Yes? My name is Dollar. I'm here to see Mrs. Martin. Oh, yes. Mrs. Martin. Uh-huh. I'm afraid I'll have to disappoint you. The widow has gone shopping the day after the death of her husband. Something attractive in morning clothes, I'm sure. Well, what time is she expected back? I have no idea. But it shouldn't be long. Do you uh, mind if I come in and wait? You'll forgive my asking, young man, but just what is your business here at Loyal Haven? I was sent here by the insurance company. Oh, why, yes. Well, then do come in. Uh, here, right in here. Uh, I'm uh, Mrs. Tompkins, the housekeeper, Mr. Dollar. I was with Mr. Martin for over 30 years. He was a wonderful man. This furniture also looks like it might have been with Mr. Martin for over 30 years. Victorian, isn't it? Yes. Pure. Loyal... Uh, Mr. Martin, that is, was an expert on the Victorian period. Uh, please sit down. Thank you. Mr. Dollar, I... I suppose you'll think it's indelicate of me at this time, but, uh, About Loyal's insurance, his policies... Uh, did they... Yes, uh, Mrs. Tompkins, they did. One of his policies leaves you a nice, sizable amount. But before you start counting it, maybe you and I had better have a little understanding. Yes? Well, I'm not here to represent the payoff department... I'm here to investigate the murder. Oh, I see. Yes, before the company pays off, they want to make sure that among the beneficiaries, they don't pay off the murderer, because they they really don't have to do that. I didn't realize... No, neither do a lot of people. You know, that's the way quite a few good murders are wasted. Yes, I suppose you're right. Well, if that's what you're here for, I suppose you'll want to talk to the police... Lieutenant Marquardt is in the library. That's where it happened. Oh, library, huh? Well, that might help. If I can't find any other answers, I can always try looking some up in a book. Which way do I go? The door, just across the hall. Thank you. And what a hall. The only thing missing was old Queen Victoria herself. Even the musty odor clinging to the green velvet seemed to have been passed down through the centuries. There was a brace of moth-eaten pheasants on the wall and a bouquet of moth-eaten flowers under glass on a marble-top side table. The library was the same. But there were three things that looked out of place. A, an old suit of armor. B, a glass case filled with new, well-polished sporting rifles and shotguns. And C, a very gruff-looking lieutenant of the police who eyed me as I came in. And who are you? Oh, here. Here's my little breath saver. Oh, yeah, Johnny Dollar. They told me you'd be here. Well, I've told everybody else, I better tell you, don't touch anything. They want to re-fingerprint the whole room. Okay, okay. What'd you find, Lieutenant? Nothing but the cadaver with two bullet holes in his back. Haven't got a caliber report from ballistics yet. Have you an estimated time of departure? Yeah, the coroner says Martin died after dinner last night. Uh Uh-huh. Anything to go on? Just the usual. Faith, hope, and suspicion. His wife, too young and too pretty for an ugly old buck like Martin, must have married him for his money. 
Then there's that housekeeper, Sarah Tompkins. Yeah, I met her on the way in. And she used to be the old man's intended, from what I can find out. Probably jealous of the young wife. Then there's the brother, Marty. He showed up a few weeks ago, broken brooding. Probably in love with the young wife. And then there's Nick Bellotti, a private detective who hired himself out as Martin's bodyguard. Bodyguard, huh? No doubt also in love with the young wife. Could be. Who's your choice? Except for the fact that there are only two bullets, I think they all did it. The nose through which Lieutenant Markwood talked was a long one. And in more ways than one, a horn of plenty. For out of it had poured enough motives and suspects to furnish a dozen murders. I started through this cast of characters and found that all of them had very little to say and didn't want to say it. The first I dug up was the bodyguard, my brother investigator, Nick Pilati, as he returned from a horseback ride. Glad to have you on the case, Dollar. The police have tied my hands. They told me to stay out of it, but to stick around. Have you got any ideas? Everybody seems to think it was an inside job, that somebody in the household did it. I'm not so sure. The reason I was around was because old man Martin made too many dollars and too many enemies doing it. But that's only my opinion. Why don't you talk to the old boy's younger brother, Marty? I found Marty living the life of Riley. He was upstairs in his room, cuddled up to a 20-year-old bottle of brandy, which was still underage to be around as the kind of book he was reading. Yeah, I'll tell you something, Dollar. My brother and I never did get along. Yeah, you'd find that out anyway. Why'd you come back here, Marty? Because Loyal's little bride, Joy Ann, sent for me. She was afraid of him, and she didn't know if he was on to her. Was he? <laughs> About that, you'll have to talk to Joy Ann. Joy Ann didn't get home until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I caught up with her 20 minutes later as she came dripping out of the swimming pool. The suit she was wearing would have gotten her pinched on the Riviera. Oh, that was refreshing. Well, uh, it certainly is. Oh, toss me that towel, will you? Yeah, surely. Here, Mrs. Martin. Uh, Joy Ann, I hate formality. Who are you? Well, I'm from the insurance company, here to find out whether you killed your husband or not. Hmm, good for you, Mr. Dollar. That's what I like. Men who get right down to the point. I was told you were here. Oh? Nobody told me about you. Come on over and learn. I want to stretch out here in the sun. Here, you man the fly swatter. Okay. Come on, sit down. Here beside me. If it gets too warm, slip off your shirt. Oh, thank you. Well, suppose we start talking business. Marty tells me you sent for him to come here because you were afraid of your husband. How come? Well, I knew Marty before I knew Loyal. As a matter of fact, he's the one who introduced me to call a dead husband. You call him unlucky, I guess. Anyway, for the purposes of this conversation, I'll know who you mean if you just say husband. But you didn't answer my question. I meant, were you afraid of your spouse? And if so, why? Yes, I was afraid of him. Oh, I might as well tell you, Mr. Dollar. I want to be frank with you. The only thing loyal didn't have to offer me was love. I seem to be a girl who needs just that. Frankly, I... I tried to make up the deficit. Mrs. Tompkins, the housekeeper, saw to it that my husband found out about it. From then on, it was like living with a madman. So endeth my confession. So beginneth my suspicions. 
What about this housekeeper? Well, until I came along, she always thought that Loyal would wind up marrying her. Oh, don't get me wrong. I realize that I'm still the best jury bait around. If you killed him, you might make some headway with a self-defense plea. Thanks. I remember that. In the meantime, just in case this thing gets messy for me, and it shows signs, I'm going to spend what's left of my free time enjoying myself. Well, that won't sound good to a jury, but it sounds good to me. If I spend too much time around here, I might wind up having to plead self-defense myself. Oh? From me? No. From that bathing suit. I spent the rest of the afternoon trying to keep two eyes on four people, reading from left to right. Brother Marty stayed in his room, finishing his book and his brandy. Nick Bellotti, the bodyguard with no body to guard, got back on his horse and cantered off into the sunset. The joyous widow, Joy Ann, locked herself in her room, and all I could get through the keyhole was the sound of a light and lovely snore. I couldn't tell whether it was the genuine article or not. Having no way of checking, I picked up the trail of Sarah Tompkins, the housekeeper. She, at least, was apparently up to no good. I found her in the library doing just what Lieutenant Mark would have told her not to do, smearing the surfaces of Mr. Martin's desk with a dust rag. And as anybody knows, you can't fingerprint a dust rag. Hey, cut it out! How dare you? Mr. Martin's private study. Those are the police private fingerprints you're messing up. I was doing nothing of the sort. I was dusting his desk. I always do it at this time of day. Get out of here. You don't belong in here. Keep your wig on, Mrs. Tompkins. I'll not be told what to do by outsiders. Everything was all right until outsiders started coming in. If it wasn't for outsiders, Loyal would still be alive. First that girl, then his brother and that detective. Now it's the police and you. Why did any of you have to come here? Why couldn't you leave us alone? Now calm down, Mrs. Tompkins. Try to calm down. Yeah, now, what's going on in here? What? Oh, and what are you two lovebirds up to? It's all right, Lieutenant. I'll tell you about it later. All right, but get her out of here. I've got some looking to do privately. Take her down to her room and then come back. You mean you got something hot? It ain't cold. Okay, Mrs. Tompkins, come on. <laughs> but I haven't finished in there. Come on, you can get it later. There's just time for you to take a little rest before dinner. Oh, but I never rest this time of day. He didn't like me to. Mrs. Tompkins, come on, tell me. Really. Why were you wiping off that desk? Those police this morning. Scattered white powder all over his desk. He would have been furious with me. He hated any kind of... The shots had come from the library, and that's where I went, but not fast enough. By the time I got there, Lieutenant Markwood was dead, and whoever had done the shooting was gone, apparently through an open window. Markwood still clutched a shotgun he'd grabbed out of the gun case, but hadn't had a chance to use. Two things had just died in that room, the lieutenant and the hot piece of evidence He'd never had the chance to pass on to me. In just a moment, we return to the second act of Johnny Dollar. But first, the cream of the wit and the best of the music, which Arthur Godfrey brings you in the daytime on CBS, can now be heard on Godfrey's Digest a new Saturday evening show heard on most of these same CBS stations. Listen tomorrow night 
And here the week's fastest flashes of the Godfrey humor, the top song sung by Jeanette Davis and Bill Lawrence, the finest singing of the Mariners. Arthur Godfrey's Digest and the Goldbergs are the latest addition to CBS's Great Saturday Nights. Now with our star, Edmund O'Brien, we return to the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Oh, Markwood. Yeah, he's dead. Well, what are you doing, Sala? I'm looking for what there seems to be a shortage of around here, Bilotti. Clues. You don't mind where you look, do you? Rule number one, don't get caught frisking dead cops. Forget about it, Bilotti, will you? Maybe I can suffer from lapse of memory for you sometime. That's a deal. Got any idea what you're looking for? No, but whatever it was, it was important enough to get him killed. I'd hope maybe there'd be something in his notebook, for instance. Any luck? Well, very little. It's a brand new book, only one notation in it. Here it is. Check tattooing diameter. Recheck penetration. What do you make of that? It's too scientific for me. I'm a skip case and divorce type detective myself. All I know is you'd better put that book back in his pocket and leave it there. Yeah, I guess you're right. A nice timing, Bilotti, and remember... Thanks for the loss of memory. Forget it. Hey, what happened? What's going on oh, here? Oh, Lord. Lieutenant Markwood. Who did it? Dealer's choice. So far, the dealer's the only one who knows. First my brother, now Lieutenant Markwood. There'll be real trouble about this. Johnny, shall I call the police? Drop the innocent accessor-in-law. I'll call them. No, maybe i better do it, Marty. If everybody will stop pleading not guilty by wanting to call the police, I'd like to get a word in. The police have already been called. Now, if you'll get out of here, I'd like to try earning my salary. If I had had longer ears and more soulful eyes, I would have been all bloodhound because I could sniff out the first of the trail. The smell of cordite told me that Lieutenant Markwood's killer had either been inside the room when he fired or just outside with the weapon pointed through the still open window. Outside, the grass formed a deep, wet rug right up to the house and smothered any immediate hopes I'd had of finding footsteps. But ten feet away, I had better luck. A ray of light from inside spotlighted something that looked like it might be a star witness. It was a 32 caliber revolver. I scooped it up with my handkerchief and went back through the open window to look it over. Under the light, I checked six empty chambers and a crimson smear on the walnut grip. If somebody was feeding me a herring, it sure was red. But it wasn't blood. It was lipstick. I'd like to introduce myself, Dollar. I'm Sergeant Norrin McDougal. How are you, Sergeant? Ah, poor Markwood. Thank the Lord he didn't have any wife and kids. I'm glad to hear that. Cops usually do. Well, there's one good thing about it. When a police officer goes, there's plenty of them that lives on to fight back. All the police in the world. You can throw in the private ones, too, Sergeant. Thanks, Dollar. And now, maybe I'd better take your statement. Well, it won't take long. I heard the shots from the hallway, and I came back. He was killed either from inside the room or just outside the window. I didn't get a look at the killer, but I found what might be the murder gun. Here it is. Uh, watch that handkerchief. Hmm. Thirty-two caliber. Yeah, how does that match up with the gun that killed old man Martin, do you know? Same caliber. Uh-huh. Huh. I wonder what he was doing with this shotgun. 
it ain't loaded, and Mark would knew better than to wave an unloaded gun in the face of a full one. Did you get anything else out of ballistics, Sergeant? Ah, uh, headache. Dollar, what we got from ballistics don't add up with what we got from autopsy. Well, how's that? Those two slugs ended Martin's body an inch and a half apart. But, according to the shallow penetration, they were fired from a distance of 300 yards. Now, do you know anybody who could do that kind of shooting with a 32? Well, that's pretty fancy shooting. Could it have been done with a stationary mount? No, not a chance. The body would have started falling after the first shot. And you can't re-aim a stationary mount that fast. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You know, I didn't have a chance to spend much time with Markwood before he got it, so I, I don't have much to work on. You got anything to spare? Just a lot of routine confusion so far. You know yourself, Dollar. You take four witnesses, you're bound to get at least two different stories. Uh, two of the people that heard the shooting when Martin got killed last night said they heard two shots. The other two ear witnesses said they heard one. The only thing the whole four agree on is that they didn't see anything. Well, that sounds familiar. Thanks anyway, Sergeant. Sure, anytime. Hey, Sam. Yeah? Take this gun into town. Tell ballistics to run it through for fingerprints and check it against those slugs in the Martin case. I want to report right away. I hitched the ride with that gun into the ballistics department. While waiting for the test to be made, I asked some questions and I came up with a real brain buster. Despite the fact that the penetration report said that Martin had been shot from a distance of 300 yards, his skin and clothing had been tattooed with powder, indicating the shots had been fired at close range. The tree that little puzzler put me up would have made the giant redwood forest look like a hedge. Then they gave me the ballistic report. The lands and grooves scored into the slugs by the revolver barrel proved that both Loyal Martin and Lieutenant Markwood had been killed by the 32 caliber gun I'd picked up in the yard. No prints on it. Registered owner, the young lady who looked much better in a bathing suit than she'd ever look in the electric chair. The widow, Joanne Martin. The Hartford Hawkshaw, Dollar, I want to talk to you. Oh, I'll be with you in a second. I'm just out of the shower. Okay. First she was in the pool, now it's the shower. She's also in plenty of hot water. Hi. Don't pay any attention to my hair. Hmm. Don't worry, I won't. Uh, I suppose you think it's a silly time of night for me to be taking a shower. But I thought it might help me to get to sleep. Well, I'm afraid I won't. Why, Johnny. You, uh... You were pretty careless with that gun, weren't you? What gun? Oh, that handy little thirty-two caliber gun with a handy little registration number engraved on it that told the nasty old police that you bought it six weeks ago. Oh, well, my gun's right here in the drawer. I, I bought it to protect myself from my husband. Here, Miss Oh, Johnny. It's gone. It's real gone. It's done gone and killed two men so far. And if you can't do some fast talking and some fast proving, it stands a good chance of shortening your pretty little life expectancy. Somebody must have stolen it. Oh, no. That's not even a down payment on a story. Oh, but, Johnny, there's a whole house full of people who could have done it. Not only that, they'd, they'd be glad to get me out of the way if they could. Why? Well, Mrs. Thompson, because she hates me. Loyal's brother, Marty, because I stand to inherit everything. What about Nick Bellotti? Doesn't he have an axe to grind? 
I don't know what it could be. Okay, skip it. Tell me, do you remember hearing two shots being fired around here any time before your husband was killed? Probably away from the house? Why do you ask that? Because I want to know, did you? You amaze me. Yes, I did hear two shots. The day before Loyal was killed. I was horseback riding down by the walnut grove. I remember because my horse shied. Well, this is coming a bit too readily to be readily believed. But how big is that walnut grove? Not very big. Yeah? Can you spot those shots a, a little closer? They sounded as if they came from about the middle. I, I didn't stay to find out. I guess I frightened easily. Yeah. Yeah, you frightened me easily. Why, Johnny? Why? I'll tell you why. Because whether you shot anybody or not, you're a murder, baby. Oh, Johnny. I didn't kill them. Got to believe me, Johnny. Uh-uh. I don't have to. But just for a minute, I will. What is there about police drivers? Even out in the country, they got to lay on those sirens. Johnny, please. Come on, you better get dressed, sweetheart. I told them I'd keep you occupied till they got here. Why, you... The police took Joanne and her hurt feelings off to the pokey. I took myself and my hurt cheek off to bed. The next thing I had to do had to be done by daylight. So I took over Joanne's painfully empty and prettily perfumed sack set the alarm for dawn and snort up a storm. I never knew before how much went on in the country so early in the morning. On the way to the walnut grove, the damp air washed the cobwebs out of my head, and I started thinking. Now, first, Royal Martin had been found dead with two bullet holes in him, yet two of the witnesses, Joy Ann and the housekeeper, Mrs. Tompkins, had heard only one shot. Second... That powder burn tattooing on the body, denoting a close-range killing, was in violent argument with a bullet penetration report which screamed long-range killing. Those facts added to what was in Lieutenant Markwood's notebook, plus that shotgun clutched in his dead hand, came close to tallying up the total that had cost him his life. Inside the grove, I found four walnut trees with hollows in their trunks. The first one gave me a handful of nuts and a fancy sassing by an irate squirrel. The second one came up with a handful of spunk water on a wet cuff. And the third, I found what I was looking for. I found about two pecks of clean cotton waste. That is, clean, except for some powder burns. Everything was falling into place, including a blunt instrument which hit me on the head from behind. But before I hit the ground, I saw Brother Marty Martin legging it back towards the house. I made it up the house and up the hill and onto the trail. I was just starting up the stairs when I heard another out-of-season 4th of July. Okay, Bella. I got him. Yeah. Yeah, so I see. It was self-defense. I had to do it. I hated to butt in on your case, but all of a sudden everything stacked up and I knew he was your man. When I threw it in his teeth, he made a try for his gun, so I dropped him. You sure did, Bellotti. 
Well, I owe you a lot of thanks. But if you don't mind, I'll take over from here. Sure, help yourself. Good. And, uh... I think the first thing you'd better do is hightail it into town, get your story filed with the police. Yeah, I guess you're right. You're all straight now, so you can back me up. 100%, Nick, all the way. Now get going. Come on. Okay, Donna. See you later. Sergeant Norman McDougal. Johnny Dollar, Sergeant. Oh, yeah, Dollar. Uh, what's new? Well, just another corpse. And in just about 15 minutes, the guy who made it one and conspired on the other two killings is going to walk right into your arms through the station house door. What? Who is it? Nick Bellotti, New York private license. He just shot his partner in this thing, Marty Martin. You're crazy. What about this girl? It was her gun. That was their fondest hope, Sergeant, to pin it on her. They borrowed her gun, fired two slugs from it into some cotton waste, and took the slugs and stuck them in a shotgun shell. One shot, just like both ladies said they heard. The shotgun Lieutenant Markwood was looking at when he died was really the Martin murder weapon. Oh, that takes care of the powder burns and the shallow penetration, yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Dollar. I'll be waiting for him. Hey, wait a minute. What's he walking in here for under his own power? To tell you an early morning bedtime story, just before you go off duty. He'll give you a pitch about a self-defense killing. It's a lie. The victim wasn't carrying a gun. If he had been, he would have used it on me. But he didn't. He used a sap. The sap. Expense account, items 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. $624 entertainment. Appeasing a rich widow with rich taste. Expense account, items 1 through 13 inclusive. $160, entertainment of poor insurance investigators with extravagant taste. Expense account, item 14, $7.80 mileage, New York to Hartford. You may disagree with that item, claiming that I finished the case in Fairfield County. But I didn't finish the case until I left her. And New York City is where I left her. Expense account total, $823. Signed, yours, uh, truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar stars Edmund O'Brien in the title role and is written by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd with music composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Edmund O'Brien can currently be seen starring in the Harry M. Popkin United Artist production, D.O.A. Featured in our cast were Irene Tedrow, Walter Burke, Ted DeCorsia, John Daner, Gene Bates, and Ed Begley. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is produced and directed by Jaime Del Valle. Join us again next week when Edmund O'Brien returns in another adventure of... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Ladies and gentlemen, CBS invites you to hear Senator Brian McMahon on the Capitol cloakroom over most of these same Columbia stations tomorrow night. Senator McMahon is chairman of the Joint Congressional Committee on Atomic Energy. And when he's interviewed by CBS newsmen Eric Severide, Bill Shadell, and Griffin Bancroft, this will be the first detailed discussion of the hydrogen bomb and its implications. Remember the first discussion by a high government official since President Truman's historic announcement earlier this week. Remember that CBS's Capitol Cloakroom, tomorrow night at 10.30 p.m., over most of these same CBS stations. Be sure and be listening. This is CBS, where, incidentally, Arthur Godfrey's digestive wit and humor is also heard every Saturday night. The Columbia Broadcasting System. Soon-to-be Academy Award winner Edmund O'Brien in his first appearance as yours truly, Johnny Dollar, an episode of The Winter of 1950 called The Murder of Loyal B. Martin. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We usually play a comedy at this time, and tonight's comes from a moderately surprising source, the science fiction series X-1. That show did include a few sci-fi comedies, and this one comes from an author who was known as the reigning humorist of the genre's golden age. His name was Philip Klass, but he wrote under the pseudonym William Ten. One of his earliest stories, Child's Play, was widely anthologized, and we're going to hear the radio adaptation by the expert George Lefferts. It was broadcast on NBC October 20th, 1955, as part of the series X-1. Countdown for blastoff. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X minus one... Tonight's story, Child's Play by William Ten. My name, Sam Weber. My job, an attorney. And a pretty successful one, if I do say so myself. Maybe you won't believe it, my best friends find it hard to believe, but I used to be a completely different guy. Frightened, sickly, nearsighted, a real Mortimer Meek. No kidding. That was ten years ago. The big change in me began to take place on a cold December morning in 1955. Uh, just a moment, please. Yes, please. Weber? Yes. Samuel? That's right. Okay, Jack, step back. All right, fellas, bring it in. Uh, just a moment. You must have the wrong... Watch it, Jack. 
Sign here. Is that for me? Weber, Garden Apartments. It looks like a coffin. I don't design them, Jack. I just deliver them. Sign here. After much straining, I wasn't in very good physical shape those days. I managed to push the box under my single light bulb. There was a card in the small envelope. Let's see. To Sam, from your classmates at the Interdimensional and Cosmic Institute, Merry Christmas. 2155. Holy jumping catfish. Hey, mister! Hey, mister! There must be some mistake! Hey! Holy jumping catfish! They were gone. And I didn't even know which delivery company it was. I sat down to think, and it was just beginning to seep into my sleepy brain that maybe this was one of Lou White's practical jokes when I noticed there was something funny about that box. For one thing, it was dated 2155, 200 years from now. And for another thing, it was solid gold. Pop had been in the jewelry business long enough for me to verify that. At that point, I decided to open it up and see what was in it. After about a half hour of fumbling, I gave up. All right. If you won't open, you won't open. (gasps) No sooner had I said the word open than it came apart like the skin off a banana. There inside was something resembling a high-powered kid's chemical set. Vials, jars, tubes, wires. You never saw so much scientific-looking junk in your life. And on top of it all was a book of instructions printed in mad green streaks. I opened the cover and read page one. Build-a-man set number three. This set is intended solely for the use of children between the ages of 11 and 13. The equipment will enable the child to build and assemble complete adult humans in perfect working order. A disassemblator is provided so the set may be used again and again with profit. Refills and additional parts may be acquired from the Build-A-Man Company, 928, Diagonal Level, Blunt City, Ohio. Remember, only with Build-A-Man can you build a man. When I arrived at work that morning, an hour late, my brain was still reeling with the stuff I'd read in the instruction book. By the time I'd reached the office, I decided it had been a bad dream and it would be over by nightfall. Somerset and Ojack, attorneys at law. Just a moment, I'll connect you with Mr. Ojack. Oh, good morning, Mr. Weber. Good morning, I mean, good morning. <laughs> i got to get my mind off that book. Only with Build-A-Man can you build a man. It must have been a dream. Probably go home tonight and find the place empty. Well, 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 if it isn't a poor man's Clarence Darrow. Hiya, Sam! (laughs) Sam? Oh, hello, Lou. I come as bearer of sad tidings. You don't look very sad. Boss wants to see you laughing, boy. What about? Well, how should I know? Oh, oh, and by the way, Sam, you'll be happy to know that I've just been promoted. I'm handling all the criminal stuff from now on. Congratulations. Of course, you know what this means for Tina and me, don't you, Sammy? Ah, cheer up, son. Tina's not for you anyway. Some got it, some don't. Me? I'm loaded. You? Ha! Nothing. 
So long, laughing boy. That was my good friend, Lou White. Lou was one of those guys who always lands with his feet firmly planted in the back of somebody else's neck. In the year I had known him, he'd already managed to steal the job I wanted, and he was now working on the girl I wanted. Her name was Tina. Tina Velvet. She was... Mm. Good morning, Sam. Oh, good morning, Tina. My, you look... Yes? Good enough to take to lunch. Oh, I'm sorry, Sam, but I promised Lou. Sure. I hope you're not too disappointed. Me? Oh, no, no. Some got it, some don't. I don't. Theoretically, Tina was employed by Somerset and Ojak as combination secretary and switchboard operator for Lou and me. I guess she wasn't what you'd call really smart, but she always managed to look like a pinup girl caught with her clothes on, if you know what I mean. Well, that was Tina. I tried to steady my blood pressure as I walked into the boss's office. You sent for me, Mr. Ojak? Oh, yes. Sit down, Whipper. Sit down. Thank you, Mr. Ojak. My boy, in this business, you've got to be aggressive. You've got to go out and create new clients. I don't mean ambulance chasing or anything like that, but you've got to show some zip. Yes, sir. Well, get in there and punch, Whipper. I want to see a change in you in the next few months. As a matter of fact, you'd better. I went back to my office, resolved to show some zip. I bit savagely into a copy of Hackleworth's on torts. And I called Tina for a memo. But by the time she came in, my mind was wandering again. Rosenthal versus Rosenthal. On August 4th, the party, the first part. What comes next? Sam, what comes next? Hmm? Oh, um, listen, forget the memo for a while. I, I want you to take a letter. All right, Sam. Uh, today's date, usual heading. Uh, to the Chamber of Commerce, Glunt City, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, gentlemen, would you inform me if you have registered a street or avenue known as Diagonal Level or Avenue? I write on behalf of a new client of mine... Oh, Sam, who... he, he was a new client. I wondered about it, but he looked so strange and sinister. What did he look like? Well, he was a terribly tall old man in a black overcoat. He asked if you were in, and then he tried to get your home address. But he looked and acted so strange, I didn't give it to him. He went away positively furious. That's great. Did he leave his name? Well, that's the funny part of it. He just said he was the censor or the census taker or something from the 24th Oblong. I left the office early and went home. Sure enough, there it was. My build a man set gleaming a little obscenely in the corner. I walked over to it, gave it a kick, and hollered, Open Sesame! Three minutes later, I was flopped down in bed reading Chapter One, Making Simple Living Things. An hour later, I was fooling around with such complicated items as the junior bicalibrator, which measured everything from blood pressure to hemoglobin content, and the Jiffy Vitalizer, which was actually supposed to put life in your creation, providing you had followed instructions carefully. At eight o'clock, I went out to supper with the idea of getting a little drunk. I did. At 9.45, I came back and made my first simple living thing. Here, boy. Here, boy. Maybe you aren't a boy. Let's see. According to the book, you are a rubicular oyster hog. 
Not much to look at, but I made you. Me, Sam Weber, attorney at law. I have created life. Hey, hey, come back here. Come back. Here, boy. Here, boy. Here, boy. Hey. Was no use. My rubicular oyster hog, which was a cross between a field mouse and an oyster, had run out under the door and into the world. Next morning in the office, I turned to Chapter 2, Duplicating Babies and Small Humans. Assemble your mannequin, setting all molds to the indicated calibrations. To disassemble a model, use the disassemblator provided with a set. If you cannot destroy your creation, the law requires you to call the census keeper for your oblong. Good morning, Sam. Here's that memo on Rosenthal versus Rosenthal. Also a letter for you. Shall I read it? Please. Dear Mr. Weber, there is no firm at Blunt City bearing the name of Builderman, nor do we have any thoroughfare called Diagonal. Sincerely yours, Thomas Plantagenet, Mayor. Well, that's that. Oh, by the way, your client was here again this morning, the ghoulish one. What'd you tell him? I said you'd be in later. Thanks. Will that be all, Sam? Yes. No. Uh, are you doing anything New Year's Eve? Sam, I'm disappointed in you. What did I do? You haven't even noticed. Noticed what? The ring, silly. Third finger, left hand. What? Who? Lou gave it to me. Well, Lou has plenty of zip. I'm sure you'll be very happy zipping around with each other. Oh, Sam. What's the matter? I don't know. I'm so confused. Hey, listen, what's going on in here? Tina just told me the good news about your engagement. She's crying with happiness. Oh, is that right, honey? (laughs) Well, no hard feelings, Sam. It's just that the best man got the girl. You understand how it is. Oh, by the way, we're having a little celebration at Sigali's tonight. Drop around and we'll live it up a little, huh? <laughs> I went home feeling like a man who had been stuffed into a washing machine with the dial set at rinse dry. I was a failure. My job was a bust. My girl was going to marry a football player. I'd been playing God with a chemistry set from some crazy futuristic world. And the bill collectors were hot on my heels. Why not? Think of it. A Sam Weber without all the psychological problems you've got. A dynamic, uninhibited Sam who could win a girl like Tina by sheer magnetism. Then when it was all over, we'd just take the old disassemblator and presto. And I can do it, too. Chromosome content check. Well, here goes. <coughs> it's moving. Oh, mm. Holy mackerel. Oh. It's alive. It's sitting up. Whoa! Hey, I feel great. Take it easy. Do you know who you are? Don't give me that take-it-easy routine. Of course I know who I am. I have all the thoughts you ever had up until the point I was vitalized. My brain is an exact duplicate of yours, except that I'm not all blocked up psychologically. Oh, by the way, since we both have the same name, it'll simplify things if I call you Weber. 
I'll be Sam. Look here. I'll make the decisions. How would you like a good punch in the nose? Is that any way to talk to your own parent? I did create you, you know. And don't think I don't appreciate it, Weber, old man. But let's get one thing straight. I live my life and you live yours. Got that? Who pays the rent? You do. Uh, for a while, anyway. I haven't decided whether or not I want to stay in the law business. The law business? It'd be a shame to waste all that good training, though. We, uh, we went to Harvard, didn't we? On the other hand, I want to spread out a little. Tina's the kind of girl to whom money is very important. Tina? What'd you expect? We're not quite the same, you and I. I've got zip. Don't use that word. Sorry. Now, how about some dinner? I'm starved. We'll have to go out. I'll need some clothes. Sorry, I only have this one suit. Fine, you can lend it to me. But what about me? I'll bring you a sandwich after I come back from Sigali's. Sigali's? You haven't forgotten, have you, Weber? We're invited to the celebration, Tina and Lou White. Only it wouldn't look quite right if we both showed up. So I'll tell you all about it. Now, come on, off with the suit. And no nonsense. Another drink, Mr. O'Jack. Come on. Thank you, Lou. <laughs> Is everybody happy? <laughs> oh, Tina, honey, you having yourself a little old time? Well, 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 well. The happy couple. Sam. Good evening, cats. Everybody's lit up like a Christmas tree, huh? Well, I'll. Sam, are you in the bag? Never touch the stuff, Lou, my boy. Never touch it. Hey, what's gotten into you, Weber? You seem different somehow. Well, I'll tell you. Ever since I had that talk with Mr. Ojack about myself... Oh, oh, you remember, don't you, Mr. Ojack? Why, yes. You made me realize, Mr. Ojack, that I had a whole reservoir of untapped zip. (laughs) And that's all it took, just like that. I'm a changed man. <laughs> I don't believe it. It's an act. Why, you're nothing but a cream puff, and you always will be. Mr. O'Jack, I think he owes me an apology for that. I should think so. Oh, all wh- right, all-American boy, make with the apologies. Apologize? Why, for two cents, I belt Folks, would you excuse I- Mr. White and myself for a few minutes? Coming, Mr. White. I'll be right back, honey. Okay, big boy, you've taken enough punishment. Sam! Lou! Lou, don't kill him, he did... Oh. Oh, dear. He'll be all right in a little while, baby. Did you? I mean... Oh, Sam. Tina. We really shouldn't be... I mean, kissing like this. Well, it's... What you've always wanted, isn't it? Well, isn't it? Oh, Sam. By this time, he's probably kissing her. And there's nothing you can do about it, Weber, old man. Nothing. Hey, wait a minute. Where's that book of instructions? Hmm. Uh, To disassemble a -a Build-A-Man model, merely focus the ray of the disassemblator device and press lever X. 
So you're finally home. I'm Star. My boy, you are looking at a man who in one fell swoop has got himself a raise, a promotion, and a wife. At least she'll be my wife tomorrow. Who? Tina, of course. Who have we wanted so desperately all these years? I don't believe it. It's true. I had to put on quite a show, but all around it was a real success. Mr. Ojack was so impressed, he called me aside and said he was going to give me a crack at some criminal cases. And if I made the grade, who knows... I may even accept a partnership. And what happens to me? I suppose I sit in this room with no clothes for the rest of my life. Oh, you'll be well taken care of, Weber. You've got it all figured out, haven't you? That's about it. Only you neglected to consider one thing. Oh, what's that? This. Oh, come on, put that down. I'm going to melt you down like a Welsh rabbit. Weber, you can't do that. It's murder. It's like killing your own son. Take off my suit, you phony. You won't be needing it again. You're going through with it, huh? I am. All right. Then here's your jacket. Oh, oh, oh my arm. Yeah, now, you give me that thing. Give it to me. Oh, oh. Ah, that's better. Now, we'll fix this little item so it can't do any damage. Ah, you see, Weber, you don't have the guts to stand up against the man you might have been. What's that sound? Somebody's coming up the stairs. Listen. Take a peek through the keyhole, Weber. Holy jumping. It's him. Whom? He's burning it. He's burning a hole right through the door. Good evening, gentlemen. Who are you? I'm the census keeper for the 24th Oblong. You see, your builder man's set was intended for one of the Weber children, who's on a field trip in this Oblong 200 years from now. Because of an unfortunate time warp, the set was delivered here accidentally. You mean this set came here from 200 years from now? Precisely. Time is with all things is relative. We shall have to recover the set, of course, and adjust any discrepancies that is caused. Meanwhile, the problem is... Which of you gentlemen is the original Sam Weber? I am. Listen. Liar. Difficulties, difficulties. Why can't I ever have a simple case like the doublet con duplication? Now look here, Mr. Census Keeper. The duplicate will obviously be... Less stable and more emotionally unbalanced. Certainly a man of your qualifications can decide which of us is the more valid member of society, which of us will conform more readily to the standards... Naturally. I observe that one of you is naked... That, of course... Wait a minute. And you seem to be trembling, whereas this gentleman seems quite calm. Hold it. You're making a mistake. I hardly think Stay so. Stay away from me. Do not struggle. Help. Please, please, you Mr. Weber. <laughs> yes? It would be better if you didn't watch. Of course. You understand? It's not the gift of the Builderman's set we were afraid of letting you have. It's the principle involved. You people just aren't ready to play God. You understand, of course. <laughs> Perfectly. Well, that's my story. Within ten seconds, the old Sam Weber had been completely dismantled and packed into the box. Tina and I were married, as you know, and I went on to become a full partner in the firm of Ojack, Somerset, and Weber. 
Oh, and by the way, Tina and I have been doing quite successfully what the old Sam Weber and his builder man set made such a mess of. We have one, two, three little conuplications. Sam Jr., age four, Sametta, age three, and Samina, age two months. Good night. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you Child's Play by William Tenn, adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Featured in the cast were Bill Zuckert as the truck driver, John Gibson as Sam, Grant Richards as his alter ego, Peggy Lobbin was Tina, Ted Osborne played Mr. Ojack, Bob Hastings played Lou, and Guy Rep was the man from the Census Bureau. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was an NBC Radio Network production. Child's Play, an episode of X-1 from a week and a half before Halloween in 1955 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington in HD at 88.5 on your smart speaker and at WAMU.org. On Gunsmoke, every so often we get insights into the past lives of the main characters. That's what happens in tonight's episode, which includes a slang term we still use sometimes to denote a traveling salesman, a drummer. The story's called Kitty's Outlaw, and it comes from February 12th, 1956, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Every man who comes to Dodge doesn't spell trouble. But sometimes a stranger rides in who, to my eye, has it written all over him. This one I first noticed walking slowly up and down the plaza, taking every detail in of the buildings, of the crowd, of the street. You might have thought he was figuring to buy the place. 
But after two days of his walking and sitting and watching, I decided that maybe that wasn't exactly what he had in mind. You looking for somebody, mister? You've been in Dodge long enough, stranger. You know who I am. You Marshal Dillon. If there's anything about this town you haven't found out, maybe I can help you. This is the first civilization I've seen in months, Marshal. Just trying to get used to it again. By the way, my name is Cole Yankton. But ain't no summer name, Marshal, if that's what you're thinking. What do you do that keeps you away from civilization, Yankton? Oh, I've been horse trading. Around among the settlers, a few peaceful Indians. Uh-huh. But you're done with that now. Huh? I sold what I had. Come out pretty good, too. You know, most men who come here with a stake spend it gambling. I haven't seen you near a saloon yet. I'll look them over later. You aiming to stay here long? I come here to take the Santa Fe to Wichita, Marshal. Well, it goes every day. You got something against me? No. Not yet. You just being a lawman, you gotta be suspicious of everybody, don't you? Not everybody. There's nothing wrong with me, Marshal. Now, don't you worry about a thing. I want, Yankton. Good. I'm gonna let you do the worrying. <laughs> I figure this saloon's about to go broke. Oh, why is that, Kitty? Well, they've almost stopped watering the whiskey. Oh? I swear they're pouring at least half and a half these days. <laughs> uh, Kitty, Sam's got to make it last, you know. One barrel for the whole winter? <laughs> <laughs> well, the less people drink, the less trouble they make for me. Ah, that's being selfish. Oh. Huh? I wondered how long he'd hold up. What? Who are you talking about? Now, the man at the door over there. He's been in town two days, and this is the first time I know he's come into a saloon. Kitty, what's the matter? Nothing, Matt. Nothing. You're staring at him like he was a ghost or something. A ghost? Well, what is it, Kitty? Do you know him? Cole Yankton. Well, who is he? What do you know about him? He's coming over here. Excuse me, Matt. No, wait a minute, Kitty. Evening, Marshal. Hello, Yankton. Uh, your girl took off. Uh-huh. She's going out the back door. She's really leaving. Yeah, it looks that way. Now, why'd she do that, Marshal? I wouldn't know, Yankton. You ain't even curious? I don't figure it's any of my business. Maybe you're right, Marshal. Maybe it ain't. Like I said, Yankton... You worry about it. Good night. Good night, Marshal.
Look at him, Chester. Hmm? Sitting there half asleep in the sun. And crime is being committed all over town. Widows are being robbed. Old men are getting the throats cut. Little children are being sold into slavery. And there sits the law. Sucking on a straw while he digests his dinner. Uh, my golly, Doc, he don't look none too lively. If I had a gun, I'd shoot his heels off. I'll lend you mine. Why don't you two sit down and quit bragging? Yeah. <laughs> we better do it too, Jesse. It'll make him look less conspicuous. Ah. You know, this is one part of my job I take pleasure in, Doc. <laughs> You know something, I wouldn't hire either one of you to drive a tent big and quicksand. Don't answer him, Chester. That's his bad conscience talking. Doc, <laughs> did you ever hear of a man doing a little thinking once in a while? Uh, oh, he's thinking. And what would you be thinking so hard about, Marshal? Well, I'll tell you, Doc. Cole Yankton over there. Oh? That's him standing right across the street. Where? Oh, yes. Yes, I know I saw him this morning. This morning? Where? In the plaza. He was asking where he could find Kitty. Said he wanted to talk to her. Well, now that's all right, Chester. Why shouldn't he be talking to Kitty? Well, no reason, I guess. You don't fool me, Madeline. You're wondering why as much as everybody else. Kitty knows lots of people, Doc. Oh, yes. People like Cole Yankton, outlaws. Look, look, there's Miss Kitty. She's going to run right into him. He stopped her. I guess he's going to get to talk to her, all right. But he isn't, Chester. He's just kind of smiling at her. Well, that sure didn't last long. Where is he going now? He's taking his horse. Looks like he's leaving town, Matt. Yonder he goes. Well, that's good riddance. You can forget about him, Matt. Yeah, maybe. Why don't you ask Miss Kitty about him, Mr. Dillon? You said you was having supper with her tonight, didn't you? Yeah, that's right, Chester. I'm having supper with her. Enchiladas, Matt? Well, I'd like them better if I knew what they were using for meat, Kitty. <laughs> Haven't you ever been here before? <sighs> no, not often. Uh, yeah, for one thing, it's too long a walk. This place is hardly part of Dodge. Mm. Now, just because it's at the edge of town. I don't think you like Mexican food, Matt. <laughs> I grew up on it, Kitty. Well, the walk's good for you. Gives you an appetite. Huh? Mm-hmm. Is that why you brought me clear out here? Mm. I get tired of eating at Delmonico's in those places. Change is good for you once in a while. Yeah, sure, it's good for you. As long as it's for the better. There's nothing wrong with this food. I think it's delicious. Uh-huh. Have you tried this coffee? Well, I wasn't talking about the coffee. Well, you take cornmeal and molasses and you fry it together until it turns to powder. And then you boil that with water and you got coffee. Is that how they make it? No, that's how they make it here. <laughs> well, I like it. Well, you don't have to, you know. It's not going to cost me much. Then you ought to be grateful I made us come here. Oh, I am, Kitty. I sure am. Matt. Yeah? You haven't asked me about Cole Yankton. 
No, I haven't, Kitty. Why should I? I don't. I swear I thought I'd never find you. What are you doing way out here? Uh, something wrong, Chester? Only the bank got held up. Three men, they took over $10,000. When? A while ago. I've been looking everywhere for you. Was anybody hurt, Chester? Well, there was a few shots fired, but nobody got hit, I know of. What, any idea who it was? Yes, sir. One of them, anyway. Well, who? Cole Yankton. Matt. Now, we'll talk about it later, Kitty. I brought your horse, Mr. Dillon, and we better get going or we won't never find him. All Chester knew was that Cole Yankton and his partners had headed south out of Dodge. So we started after him. We rode blind for a few hours. I was about to give it up and wait for daylight when we ran into a cowboy who'd heard him ride past him in the dark. When I told him who I was, he told me the only place in the whole country where they might be hiding. And an hour later, Chester and I were crawling on our bellies up to a half-fallen shack that lay under a small bluff. They ain't even hiding in the shack. They got a fire going outside. They'd have been safe enough if it hadn't been for that cowpuncher, Chester. Yankton's the one laying on the ground, ain't he? Yeah. Quiet now. Just hold it up, Chester, and listen. Come on, let's get a little closer. There's only two of them, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. The other one's probably in the shack. Listen. How are they going to find it? You bloodhound. Well, they don't like it, I tell you. Another thing, Yankton. What were them men doing in the bank? It was always empty at that hour. Can't find out everything in two days, can I? No, I guess not. I still give you credit for one thing, Yankton. At least that tin horn marshal never showed up. Don't give me credit for it. What he means, kid, Mr. Dillon? He means she was in on it. That gal help you out? What's her name? Her name's Kitty, and I don't want to talk about it. Hey, you talked about enough what we got to die. Look, Marshall was out of the way, wasn't he? That's what I said. And that's all you need to know. Now leave Kitty out of it. <laughs> You're awful touchy about it, ain't you? Yankee? You shut up, Robert. Chester. Yes, sir. You now, watch for the man in the shack. I'm going to move in on these two. Are you ready? I'm ready. I will. All right, you men are covered. Get your hands up. I got that fellow in the door, Mr. Dillon. I gave up, Marshal. Don't shoot. Got them all but him. All right, keep your hands up, Yankton. Here up. All right, get on your feet. No, I can't, Marshal. I'm too dizzy. What? I got hit. Marshal, I... I just... Got him, too, I guess, Mr. Jones. Yeah. Yankton? He's bleeding all right, Chester, but he's not dead. Say, looks like an old cart of some kind over there, Mr. Jones. If it ain't busted, maybe we can hitch it up and carry him back to Dodge. Yeah. 
Well, let's find that money first, and then we'll try it. All right. Mr. Dillon? Yeah. What, Chester? It's kind of bad about Miss Kitty, ain't it? up, Yankton. There's always a chance. My partners, they're both dead, ain't they, Marshal? We buried them before we brought you in, Come in. Oh, well, Kitty. I'm tired to come away with here. Hello, Kitty. You got a bullet in me, Kitty. I know. Out on the street there yesterday, I, I had it in mind to ask you something, but when I got close to you, I, I knew I couldn't. And I'm glad, because things, things didn't work out so good. No. I'm sorry, Cole. I'm real sorry. Thank you for coming, Kitty. I won't bother you no more. He's dead. Here, I'll, I'll cover him up. Matt. No, Kitty. You, you, you don't have to explain anything. Yes, yes, I do. I want you to hear, too, Doc. I'm listening. You both think I tried to help him, don't you? Well, it looks like you did, Kitty. I know. And I guess I'd have to hear you say it before I'd believe it. I stand with Matt, Kitty. Thanks, Doc. Matt. I'll tell you what, let's forget about it, Kitty, huh? No. No. I want to tell you something about Cole Yankton. He's been in California for years. That's why you never heard of him. Well, I've heard of him. I know what he's been doing. I think he came here because he thought I'd help him. But then he did a nice thing, Matt. He didn't ask me to. 
He didn't make me say no. Well, then I guess he wasn't so bad after all, did he? Poor Yankton. New Orleans. I was just a girl. He was the first man I ever knew. The first grown man. Yankton was a fool, Matt. Yeah. He should have stayed with that girl. Yeah, she's all right, isn't she, Doc? William Conrad. You know, to compliment a Westerner, you, you might say, he'll do to ride the river with. Well, that means that he's courageous and honest. But next week, when a man rides the river, he dies. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin and Barney Phillips. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Kitty's Outlaw, an episode of Gunsmoke, two days before Valentine's Day in 1956. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and you're encouraged to check us out on Facebook, The Big Broadcast, and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Despite the two atomic bombs that finally convinced the Japanese Emperor Hirohito to surrender to the Allies, no one knew exactly when that surrender might come. The government in Tokyo had signaled on August 10, 1945, its intention to give up, but the actual announcement didn't occur until this date, August 14th. That meant that by his own account, the writer, director, and producer Norman Corwin had less than one full day to prepare something for VJ, or Victory in Japan, day. As he had in his immortal broadcast, On a Note of Triumph, celebrating the end of World War II in Europe three months earlier, Mr. Corwin came through with flying colors, red, white, and blue. He did have a stellar performer on this occasion, Orson Welles, and though he expanded his piece to a full half hour a little later on, on August 14, 1945, it was just a bit over 15 minutes long. That's the version we're going to hear now, the original, just as it was broadcast on August 14, 1945, over CBS. It contains a host of World War II references, including the Japanese propagandist Tokyo Rose, the nuclear facility at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, 
Reconversion, the transition to peacetime, the names of quite a few battles and wartime leaders, and some objectionable language we would never use today. You can find a link to the script on our social media. Here, with music by Lucien Morawieck and Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, is Norman Corwin's 14 August, A Message for the Day of Victory. This day is the father of great anniversaries. Men and saints shall picnic together on 14 August down more years than you or I shall see. So say it tonight with saluting guns. Say it with roses. Say it with a hand clasp, a drink, a prayer. Say it any way you want, but say it. Say it! Columbia Broadcasting System presents 14 August, a message for the day of victory by Norman Corwin, spoken by Orson Welles. Congratulations for being alive and listening on this night. Millions didn't make it. They died before their time, and they are gone and gone. For the fascists got them. They are not here, but their acts are here. And they are to be saluted from the lips and from the heart before the conversation swings around to reconversion. Fire a cannon to their everlasting memory. God and uranium were on our side. The wrath of the atom fell like a commandment, and the very planet quivered with implications. Tokyo Rose was hung over from the news next day, and the emperor prayed to himself for succor. So sound the guns for Achilles, the atom, and the war workers... Newton and Galileo, Curie and Einstein, the Archangel Gabriel, and the community of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Ladies and gentlemen, the peoples have come a long way since we were tadpoles. Much has happened, and the upward path has been strewn with dinosaurs, tigers, Caesars, slave traders, and fascists, in spite of which, as you have heard on the radio tonight, the best in the way of flags is flying over the once mighty lands of the enemy, and free men are being born on schedule. New free men, 
conceived December last during a counteroffensive against their elders in the Ardennes, are tonight breathing and kicking and making fists, our heirs to victory. Whereas the saber-toothed tiger is nicely arranged with fish fossils in the museum, and Caesar is twice hacked to pieces by his countrymen, the second time strung up by the heels to cure. The trader in slaves cannot buy back his name from the contempt of the generations, and the Nazi is parted from his pomp and his furor, pending announcement of the hanging day. The Jap who never lost a war, has lost a world, learning at what cost to us all the crime does not pay. This, too, this, too, is worth a cheer. Tomorrow will be time enough for humility. Tonight, we count our trophies... The scuttled hulk of the proud Graf Spey. A lie from the mouth of Goebbels, nailed to the ground. A carpet, chewed by Hitler, later disinfected in the flames of Berchtesgarten. The Luftwaffe, in a journey in a British junkyard. Hand clasps and bear hugs on the Elbe. Footprints and gun tracks going from Berlin to Warsaw to Stalingrad to Warsaw to Berlin in 68 months. Bloodiest round trip in history. Pearl Harbor repaid a thousand times. Fourteen August. Fourteen August to the gun turret and the turret lathe, and both stand still, and their masters stop to wipe away the sweat of winning. Fourteen August, to the tractor in the wheat field, and the farmhand who heard the news from Washington on the local wavelength a few hours back, 14 August to the flag on Surabachi and to Colin Kelly's boy and Maya Levin's mother. The bones of the expendables of Corregidor stir imperceptibly on 14 August. 14 August, Chinese time, to the bridge at Mukden where the Japanese crossed over into war some 14 years ago, next month. 14 August, to the blood brothers of Stalingrad, their armies lately a burning wind across the plains of Manchuria. 14 August, to the mending wounds among the hospitals and to the barracks bags and to the bunks and flight decks of the fighting ladies. New homecoming. Now the dog tag exchanged for the name again. They will converge from outlandish zones of time 
From secret somewheres known alone to postmasters, from lanes of oceans, and from windy desert camps. The comrades will write letters to each other for a while, and then drop out of touch. The mess halls where the meals were on the house will be forgotten soon enough between Jim's diner and home cooking. Beaches without beachheads. Jobs without sergeants. The men who tilted guns of battleships and stoked them in epic battle will ride the level ferries of bay and river. And tank men will drive a powered lawnmower while their fathers watch. The pilot with many missions will do errands for some civilian company. And the bombardier who crushed a city in a blinding instant will help his wife dry dishes in the kitchen sink. But peace is no dull enterprise this time. It will be armed and vigilant, not languid and flabby. The degenerate years of rigged markets, apples selling on the corner and produce plowed under in the breadline are old ghosts, well laid. What God and laboratory have wrought can serve those who have served. The agitated atom would rather build a city than destroy one and the jet plane carry passengers to mild appointments. 14 August is 14 August to half a hundred United Nations, the greatest of which have fought too well, too well together, ever to fall apart. Listeners, on 14 August, 1945, size up the latest news bulletins against the morbid yesterdays of Warsaw and Pearl Harbor, fallen Paris and the Blitz on London. Weigh Potsdam against Munich carefully, removing from the balance the millions who shall walk no more. Sketch in the dates and happenings from textbooks and from memory and draw your own conclusions. Are we agreed that all is one? That the world's a single continent? That mountains made of faith are not to be moved? That freedom is an endless river, jealous of its tributaries, fertilizing the country through which it flows? Study our time. It will do us good. Effective, 15 August. Peace, its care and handling, becomes our homework. tonight with saluting guns, with champagne, and with laughter. But also remember the fields beyond, 
and the names and faces beyond. It is worth noting and remembering that here in this August, the grass is hearty, the sky friendly, the wind in the windsock, birds are competitive, the hills of home are in their accustomed places, and all is accounted for. All is accounted for except the farmer's boy and the mill hands who live near the canal and the young men from the city block where the gutters fry in summer. One lies with an ocean across his chest at the bottom of an arctic deep. Another sleeps with sand in his eyes where he fell on a beach at Palau. The bones of the fishermen rest in clay far from the rocks of Maine. And the miner's kid is under the ground of China. The cricket sings in the summer night. But the soda clerk says nothing. The fawn leaps in the wolf-proof wood. But the jungle roots twine the postman's feet. The turtle is young at sixty-one. But the flyer is dead at 18. Remember them. Oh, when July comes round and the shimmer of noon excites the locusts, when the pretty girls bounce as they walk in the park and the moth is in love with a 60-watt bulb and the tar on the road is blistered, they've given their noons to their country. They've trusted their girls to you. They are face to face with an ally's earth for a bunch of tomorrows. Remember them. Oh, in the fall of the year, when frost airbrushes the withering leaf and the silo is fat as a bearing woman and the cleats in the backfield dig up gains to the praise of the stadium when the number one goose says it's time to go. The flock points of E to the south. They've given their seed to 48 states. Their football tickets to you. The shirt on their back is a worm-cut rag for silks and breads and bomblessness. For kids unplanned today who will play ghosts and tojo every Halloween. Remember them. Oh, in the sleeting months, when the sap stands cold in the veins of the tree, and the bottle of milk on the frozen doorstoop raises its cap to the morning, when the skating girls eddy like snow on the rink, and the storm window hooked on the prairie farmhouse mutters in the gale out of Idaho. They've spilled their blood for the rights of men. For people the likes of me and you. And they ask that we do not fail them again in the days we are coming to.
have been listening to 14 August, a message for the day of victory, written, directed, and produced by Norman Corwin, and spoken by Orson Welles. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Fourteen August, a message for the day of victory, originally broadcast on VJ Day, 77 years ago tonight. We've played it on other VJ Day commemorations here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. On Dragnet tonight, a mystery surrounding a homicide. It's a case called The Big Smart Guy, and it comes from June 8, 1950, NBC and Dragnet. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A woman has been shot to death. The apparent motive, robbery. The killer's still at large. Your job, find him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Friday, March 16th. It was damp in Los Angeles. We are working the night watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 11.45 p.m. when we got to where we'd parked our car. Second in Maine. Couple of drops on the windshield. Yeah, I hope it holds off. I was... I think we're going out to see the Cubs and Pirates play an exhibition game tomorrow. Guess maybe now I won't. You might be lucky. What's the weatherman say? Oh, get the radio. Yeah. It's a slow night. Yeah. Uh-huh. Might not be tomorrow night. What? March seventeenth, isn't it? Oh yeah. Sixty-two A, call your station. All units in vicinity of 102 South Virgil, 211 and shooting, code 3. It's a hard one. All units in vicinity Out of 102 first, South Virgil, 211 and shooting, code 3. Unit 13, take the call. Happy St. Patrick's Day. 11.58 p.m. We arrived at 102 South Virgil, the Bartlett Hotel, four-story building. Sergeant Scheimer met us in the lobby and informed us that the shooting took place at 11.40 p.m. in room 432. Occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Theodore V. Benham. Mrs. Benham was the victim. We went up to the fourth floor where Officer McCready was stationed outside the room. Any witnesses? Only Benham says he was a thief. Did you talk to any of the people on this floor? None of them saw anything. They're all in their rooms. Any other way out of here? That stairway in the rear leads to the roof. I took a look. Nothing up there. Uh-huh. Where's Benham? Across the hall, lying down. Cox is with him. Okay. Let's look at the body. We went into the room, a dreary place with a single light hanging from the center of the ceiling. The carpet was faded and worn in spots. On the north side were a closet and a bathroom. 
Against the east wall was a dresser. Across the room was a double bed, and at the foot of the bed, a window looking out over the roofs of adjoining buildings and the marquee of a movie house down the street. A steamer trunk was in the corner, and a straight-backed chair was next to the door. The mirror of the dresser was smashed, and on the dresser, a Gideon Bible. On the bed was the body of a woman, sprawled face down. There were several splotches of blood on her coat. On the chair was a thirty-two twenty revolver, which McCready said belonged to Benham, the husband of the murdered woman. We asked McCready to put in a call to the crime lab, and we went across the hall to question Benham. This is an awful shock. I'm not feeling well. I'm under doctor's care. Hemophilia. Awful shock. Sit down, please. Yes. I... I don't know what it'll do to me. I should be in the sanitarium right now. We'll see you're taken care of. Lincoln Sanitarium in Eagle Rock. Could you tell us what happened tonight? Why, yes. We, my wife and I went out to the Sycamore Cafe over in Alvarado. What time was that? Oh, about 9.30. We had a couple of drinks and something to eat. Listened to a piano player, then came home. I unlocked the door and Elizabeth went in first, went over to the dresser. I just walked over to her when a man stepped out of the closet in the back of us. He had a gun. Mm-hmm. Can you describe him? I don't know, I don't know. Did you see his face? No. He had a blue bandana over his face and he had a cap on, a blue and white shirt. Did you notice his clothes? No, no, I didn't. Anything else? Well, he seemed very nervous and he wasn't holding the gun still. My wife was opening a purse and I said, well, I haven't got very much, but I'll give you what we have. And he fired and hit Elizabeth. I pulled my gun from my overcoat and started shooting. Are you in the habit of carrying a gun? No, 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 I'd noticed suspicious-looking men follow me lately, so I bought one. Is uh, this the gun here? Yes. Then what happened? Well, I fired all the bullets. I don't know how I missed the room. Small. He kept moving around all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess I did miss. Then he ran out of the room. But how old would you say this man was? Officer, I haven't the faintest idea. Uh, see you a minute, Sergeant. Sure. We'll be back, Mr. Benham. This has been an awful shock to me. wonder how his wife fell. McCready told us that Sergeant Scheimer had found a woman in the Nevada hotel next door who might know something. We went next door and questioned Mrs. Caroline Cromwell, a resident of the hotel. She occupied room 415 on the top floor. She told us that about 20 seconds after she heard the shots, she looked out the door of her room and saw a man come down the back stairs, which leads to the roof of the hotel, and enter room 402. She'd seen the man several times and was positive of her identification. Sergeant Scheimer said the man was registered as Jack Morrison. We went to room 402. Try it again. Who's that? Police officer. What do you want? I'd like to ask a couple questions. I was going to bed. We'd like to talk to you. Won't take very long. All right. What do you want to know? How long have you been in your room? About ten minutes. Why? Where were you? To the movie. Which one? Right down the street. Why are you asking me all these questions? You been drinking? A little. Not much. Mind if we look around a little? I was out all the time. I didn't know nothing about a shooting. Then you won't mind if we look around. You won't find nothing here. These all the clothes you've got? Yeah. This your coat? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're wearing this tonight, were you? No. It's the only coat in the closet. What'd you do with the coat you were wearing? Guess I was wearing that one. 
Just spill it? What? The bottle of whiskey. It broke. How? How do I know? Got a hole here in the sleeve. What'd you do with the broken bottle? Threw it away. Where? I don't know. On the street. Joe, I found something. A shirt. Stuck down between the wall and the bathtub. Looks like blood on it. Is this yours? Where's the shirt you wore tonight? Take off your pajama top. Why? Take it off. All right. But I didn't have nothing to do with that shooting next door. What happened to your arm? Guy shot at me. Who? I don't know. I bought a bottle and had a couple of drinks and went to the movie for a little while. Would you mind moving away from the bed, please? No, no. Thank you. I came out of the movie because I was getting dizzy. And I went up on the roof here to get some air. While I was standing there, a guy ran across the roof and shot at me. What did the man look like? I don't know. He came from the roof of the hotel next door and ran into this place. How big was he? It was dark. I couldn't see. What did you do? Well, after I was sure he was gone, I came down. I was going to have my arm fixed in the morning. Better get your clothes on. Why? Well, you got a pretty bad arm. You better have it fixed up. We'll take you to George Street Receiving Hospital. It's all right. I don't have to go there. Find anything, Ben? No. You got a clean shirt? No. Well, you better wear your pajama top, then. Oh, here's something. What'd you say your name is? Jack Mars. Here's a card I found in the closet. It says, Tommy Kane, report for work Joe's Cafe, 8 o'clock, March 1st. Who's Tommy Kane? That's me. Where are you from? Elgin, Illinois. How old are you? I'm 22. Why'd you leave Elgin? No work. I've been bumming around. You ever been arrested? I was picked up on a vague charge a month ago. Here? Yeah. I don't know why you guys are bothering with me. When somebody gets shot, we bother. 1.30 a.m., we took Kane to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, where they found that a muscle in his upper right arm had been severed and the right side of his chest was bruised. Before taking him to Ward 1300 General Hospital for further treatment, we took him back to the roof of the Nevada Hotel. <laughs> Still trying to rain. Yeah. Well, where were you standing when you got shot at, King? Right over there. I was leaning against the bricks. Where'd the man come from? Out of that door in the other roof. Roof of the Bartlett Hotel? Yeah. Was he running when he shot at you? Yeah, yeah, he was. Where'd he run? Right across here where we are. Then he went through this door here into the Nevada Hotel. You notice anything unusual about him? Well, his face was covered with a handkerchief, and he wore a checkered cap. But you said before it was too dark. Well, I could see that. I mean, you know, I could see that. I couldn't see his face. And you were standing over there by the parapet? Yeah. Well, about, uh, about, about here? Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get over the roof of the bar. a little high. Can I help you over? No. Come on, Ben. You ever been in this hotel before, Kane? No. Everything all right, McCready? Yeah. Crime lab's here. Check at the murder room. Ben, I'm awake. I think so. 
Benham? Yes? Mind if we come in? Of course not. You ever seen this man before? Let me see. Can you stand over there in the light? My eyes aren't as good as they used to be. Okay. Move over there. How's that? That's better. This the man who shot your wife? No, that's not the man. We left instructions for another car to take Theodore Benham to the Lincoln Sanitarium in Eagle Rock. We took Kane to Ward 1300 General Hospital. 2.42 a.m., we arrived back at the Bartlett Hotel where police chemist Ray Pinker had finished his examination. Three slugs, 38 caliber, and five slugs, 3220, were found in the mattress and the walls, all on the same side of the room. On the floor of the room were found a piece of white cloth and some brown threads. Ray Pinker returned to the crime lab while Ben and I made a search of both hotels, the incinerators, the alley, and all likely places for the missing 38. was not found. 3.48 a.m., Ben went to the record bureau to check on any possible criminal record Kane might have had. I went to the crime lab to see what Ray Pinker had found. Yeah, nothing on this one. It's been a clean mess. And yeah, nothing on these four 3220s. Mm-hmm. When'd you find those? I dug the 38 out of the window frame. 3220s are in the south and east walls. How about the others here? Well, on these two 38 slugs, I found minute portions of threads. They compare with the dress and coat one of the deceased. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hi, Ben. I checked Kane's record. He told the truth. Nothing more than a vague charge, huh? No. Yeah. How's this coming? Those threads on two of the 38 slugs. And on one of the 3220s. Same kind of threads? Yeah, same kind. 3220, that's the gun Benham used. Yeah. Did you check the cloth yet? I will right now. Benham must have been shooting awful while. Where'd you find that 3220 slug, Ray? On the floor near the bed. Nothing on any of the other 3220s. No. Yeah, this piece of cloth matches the shirt. How about the coat and those threads? Got only a couple of threads that might match. Let me have the coat. Yeah. You better have Benham take another look at Kane, huh? Yeah, I guess so. I could use a cup of coffee. How about you? As soon as we get finished. How about it, Ray? Mm, better make it. Yeah, match. Well, that's it, huh? Oh, one more thing. Yeah. Fresh stains on the carpet of that room. What kind? Whiskey. March 18th, we picked up Benham at Lincoln Sanitarium and drove him to the general hospital. Three times he asked us to stop someplace so he could have a drink. We told him he'd have to wait. We arrived at Ward 1300 at 1.40 p.m. and Kane was brought out. Take a good look, Mr. Benham. No, that isn't the man. I'm sure of it. All right, Kane, tie this handkerchief over your face. No, no, this way. That's right. Now put on this cap. Okay, now stand over there, please. Now a little further. That's good. All right, Mr. Ben. You know, his eyes and forehead look a little familiar, but I don't know. Oh, my nerves are all shot. I can't be positive. I'm a sick man. All right, Kane. Wish I could help you, boys. So do we. Come along, please. Yeah, you don't have to take me back to the sanitarium. Just take me to a streetcar. I'll make it all right. Okay, thank you. Sergeant. Yeah. Can I see you a minute? Sure. Yeah. Did you notice anything when you first brought Kane out of the ward? No. You must have been closing the door. Yeah, I was. And that man, Benham, 
He winked at him. You are listening to Dragnet. We took Benham back to his sanitarium. On the way, he asked if he could be excused from testifying at the inquest and preliminary hearing. We told him it couldn't be done. 7 p.m., Ben and I returned to the general hospital and took Kane into a small room adjoining the prison ward. After three hours of interrogation, he stuck to his story. Cigarette, Kane? Thanks. How's arm? All right. Hurts a little now. When are you guys going home? When we get a straight story. I've been telling you all I know. Yeah, you've been telling us the same story for two days, but it doesn't hold water. What do you mean? How do you account for the fact that parts of your clothing were found in that room? I told you before, you must have made a mistake. No, no, it's no mistake. Mr. Benham's starting to think he recognized you. What? Why'd he wink at you? He didn't wink at me. We got somebody here who saw him. And he seems to think whoever did the shooting didn't take the gun with him. When we drove him back to sanitarium, he asked us if we found it yet. He thinks we will. How long has Benham lived in L.A.? A long time. How long? Why do you want to know how long he's lived here? Is a dead woman really his wife? Well, certainly she's his wife. What? Where's he been since the shooting? In the sanitarium in Eagle Rock. What's the matter with him? Hemophilia. You know what that is? No. You sure that was his wife? Positive. She wasn't a stool pigeon? Stool pigeon? Where'd you get that idea? You guys never saw her before? Never. You never heard of her? Kane, what's eating you? Did you check on her? We always do. You don't make mistakes on anything like that, do you? No, no. Look, she was a pretty nice woman from all we could find out. Happily married for 30 years. Something's wrong. What, Kane? What's wrong? Oh, setup. Yeah? Yeah. What'd Benham say about me? We told you. He says you look a little bit like the man. Did you say anything else? He winked at you, Kane. Why? She wasn't a bad-looking woman. Wasn't she, Kane? All right, now, how about it? You guys swear that was his wife? Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you where the 38 is. Where? The mattress on the roof of the Nevada Hotel. Venom cut a hole in it that day. He told me to hide the gun there after the shooting. All right, let's have a look. I don't want anybody to know I'm telling you this. Why? Venom's a real smart guy. He's got a gang. He's in on it as much as I am. Yeah? He double-crossed me. He tried to kill me. I'm going to jail. He's going with me. Maybe he will. Kane told us that he had known Benham for about two months. During that time, Benham helped him along by giving him a couple of dollars every once in a while. On March 11th, Benham got Kane a room in the Nevada Hotel and gave him $20 to buy a gun, which Kane did. On March 15th, he gave Kane a blue bandana and a checkered cap. On March 16th, he told Kane that he'd been sent by a gang in Chicago to kill a woman who was a stool pigeon. He promised Kane $100 for his help. Early that evening, Benham told Kane how to enter their room and where to hide. When they came home, Benham stood by the door. Kane stepped out of the closet and, after a few words, shot the woman. As he moved toward the bed, Benham started shooting at him. Kane ran from the room and hid the gun in the mattress on the roof, then went to his room and flushed the cap and bandana down the drain. 11.15 p.m., Ben and I found the gun where Kane said it would be. 38 Special Detective, Colt Revolver, 2-inch barrel, number 381327. 11.52 p.m., we checked and found no evidence that Benham belonged to any kind of a gang. March 19th, 9 a.m. Ben and I reported into homicide and picked up Captain Steed. We went over to Dr. Wagner to learn his autopsy report. 
It showed that the deceased had been shot three times. Two 38 slugs and one 3220 were recovered from the victim's body. They were initialed for evidence. 8 p.m., Captain Steed, Ben and I went to the sanitarium and told Benham that there were a few angles we wanted to clear up before the inquest next morning. Benham got dressed and we drove back to the Bartlett Hotel. It was raining. I'm still trying to remember what happened. I was very shocked that night. Yeah, I suppose you were. Sometimes my memory comes back for a little bit. The red light? Yeah, I see. You know, the man who did the shooting knew you lived in room 432. And he knew you'd be gone that night. How do you suppose he figured that out? Well, I've been noticing that a lot of men have been following me. Suspicious-looking men. I told that to Sergeant Friday, didn't I, Sergeant? Yeah, that's right. Must have been one of them. You ever give money to characters on the street so much they might follow you? Hey, that must be it. Many times I used to do that. I'd be nice to them. They'd try to make friends. You remember any of them? Yeah, yeah, I do. There was uh, old man Dorsey, and Jolly Swanson, and a fellow named uh, Kane. Blaine? Kane? Yeah, that, that's it, Kane. There you are. There you are. Uh, the young man you took me to see in the hospital. I, I'm thinking, I believe that's Kane. Are you sure? Quite sure. He's the burglar. What makes you think he was a burglar? Well, what else would he be? He didn't rifle any of the drawers or steal anything, did he? he must have got there just before us. Did you have anything important there? I uh, yes, some insurance policies. And your wife? Yeah. How much? Well, one policy for four thousand and two for twenty five hundred each. Who's the beneficiary? Well, I am. took Benham up to room 432, where he got out the insurance policies on his wife and showed them to us. Then Captain Steed asked him to reenact the shooting. Benham acted as the killer. I played Benham, and Ben acted as his wife. Well, uh, the man was over here in the closet. My wife and I came in that door, and then my wife went over to the dressing room. Oh, over here? Did you turn on the light? Oh, yeah, and then I closed the door and went over behind her. Like this? Oh, uh, she was closer to the bed. Uh, here? Yeah. Were you standing next to her? Yeah. Did you start to take off your coat? Well, I was just going to when this man stepped out of this closet here. How far? Oh, here. Yeah, yeah right here. None what? Well, he held the gun in his hand and asked how much money we had, and Elizabeth said we didn't have much. From here? Yeah, but but, but she turned around. Like this? Yeah, that's it. What happened then? Well, then I said I haven't got very much, but I'll give you what we have, and started shooting. Yeah, but you said before that your wife started looking in her purse. Uh, yeah, that's it. She did. I forgot. And that made him think she was going after a gun. How do you know? Well, I, I suppose that's what he thought. He shot and Elizabeth fell on the bed. I pulled out my gun and started shooting and the man ran out the door and that's all. That's exactly what happened, huh? Just as I remember it. Will I help you? Not very much. What's the matter? Well, if you were standing where I am, there'd be bullet holes on uh, that side of the room there, wouldn't it? They're all on this side. Oh, I see. I, I got it. Come with me. Where are you going? On the roof. What for? I want to show you something. Uh, it's raining. There are two umbrellas in the closet. I'll get them. Why do you want to go up there? I, I think I know where that gun might be hidden. I'll bet it's there. Here, you take this umbrella. Thanks. We'll take this one, Captain. Let's go. Bet it's up there. We'll find you.
Here you got your flashlight, Ben? Yeah. Should be around here somewhere. What? The mattress. My wife used to take sun baths on it. Where would it be? Oh, just about here. I don't see any. You sure it's up here? I bet it's on the next roof. Didn't you say Kane lived in that hotel? He probably moved it. Flash your light over there behind that elevator shaft. There? Yeah, there. You see it? We have to climb over this parapet to get on the other roof. Watch it, Captain. It's pretty slippery. Okay. Yeah, it is slippery. This mattress here? That's it. Take a look, Joe. Right. No, nothing here. Did you look all around there? Did you look in the corners? No. Well, that'd be a good place to hide a gun, don't you think? Here, let me see. There might be a hole cut in one of them. No, maybe the other corner. No. Well, maybe this one. Yeah, you see the mattress has been cut. No. No, it's got to be here. We got the 38. Kane told us about it. You ready to talk? Yeah. Insurance. That why you did it? Yeah. I'm a sick man. Let's go, Benham. On your feet. All right. They played that ball game the other day. Yeah? Who won? Pirates, eight to seven. Sure do like baseball. Must be a real nice business. Yeah. Fans only yell if they never do it. What's that? Kill the umpire. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On July 2nd, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Thomas Kane was convicted of second-degree murder and received a term as prescribed by law. Theodore V. Venom was convicted of first-degree murder and assault with a deadly weapon. He received a life sentence and died in prison one year later. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Dragnet, the big smart guy, an episode from the spring of 1950, and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, 
and at wamu.org. One of the many reasons to listen to vintage radio programs is the insight they offer into our own culture and history. Here's an example. In the first half of the last century, the dominant popular professional sports were baseball, boxing, and horse racing, quite different from what claims our attention today. Boxing was a really big deal. New York City was the capital of boxing, and Madison Square Garden was the capital building. I mention all this as background for an extraordinary performance by the song and dance comedian Eddie Cantor. Arch Obler, one of the three or four greatest masters of radio drama, starred Mr. Cantor in a serious role, that of a would-be boxing manager. The references in the script would have been recognized by everybody in the audience. The fight promoter Tex Rickard, heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey's manager Doc Kearns, and Robert L. Ripley, the creator of the Ripley's Believe It or Not brand. From the Mutual Network, not quite two months after VJ Day, October 4th, 1945, it's a drama called Mr. Miller, starring Eddie Cantor, whose voice often closes our show, as it will tonight, and Howard Duff from the series Arch Obler's Plays. Mutual presents Arch Obler's Plays. The Mutual Broadcasting System has the pleasure of presenting the 25th broadcast of a special 26-week series of plays by radio playwright Arch Obler, a series of dramas concerning the people of this expanding world in which we live. Tonight's play, Mr. Miller will be introduced by Arch Obler. It would be sheer presumption on my part to introduce to you either Eddie Cantor, the comedian, or Eddie Cantor, the humanitarian. For many years, he has been one of show business's all-time greats, both in terms of charitable actions and in what is equally important in these times of stress, in making you laugh again. But tonight I have the pleasure of bringing you Eddie Cantor in another role, that of a dramatic actor in a play which today is even more timely than in the pre-war years when I wrote it. For surely today of all days we know that in the larger analysis, peace in this world can come only through the good conscience of each man. Come in, come in. So, all right, come in and shut the door. So, all right, sit down. Yeah, I want to talk to you. About me. Everybody's talking about me, so why should I be different? You. I want you to understand. Why you? Ah, uh, because... Ah, uh, what's the difference? You're going to listen or ain't you? So, I'll tell you. Maybe not everything. Maybe some things I'll think in my head, but I'll tell you plenty. I, Sammy Miller, am a fool. I was born a fool, I die a fool. All right, I know it. But what I did was right. You hear me right. Okay, I'll tell you. I'll put it in simple little words so you'll understand. I, Sammy Miller, I got a crack in my head like the Holland Tunnel. I'm punchy, cuckoo, nuts. I ain't saying that alone, you understand? You don't have to tell me. Everybody's saying it. All up and down 49th Street. I can hear it in my head. Sammy Miller, he's a dope. Hurry him in the ground. Such a fool. He's dead already. All right. So it's settled, all right. I'm everything they say, all right. Who wants to give an argument? 
Who can argue when a man throws away a hundred thousand dollars? A hundred thousand dollars. Did you hear that? Do you realize what that is? Okay. Millions you read about in the paper. Million for a submarine, million for an airplane, millions for this and millions for that, but I ask you plain. Do you know how much money a hundred thousand dollars is? A hundred thousand dollars stuck up one by one like telephone poles down the street? One, two, three, four. In my head five, I begin counting it off and it's enough to go crazy. Crazy, I tell you. You work in a store, all right. You make twenty-two fifty a week. You work in a drugstore behind a counter someplace, thirty fifty. You may be a bookkeeper at forty-five. You own a big store, hundred, all right. But a hundred thousand dollars, real cash, and I threw it away. Me, Sammy Miller, who two years ago was reaching for butts in the gutter. He's crazy, nuts, bughouse, loony, cracked, punchy, crazy, nuts. I keep hearing him say it. I think it myself. Am I nuts? Did something, you know, bust in my head? Maybe from the time I got slugged. Am I nuts? Nah. What I did was right. Right? And I'll lay it on the line and show you. And maybe show myself. So will I start? When I'm 16? Yeah, good. When I'm 16. 16 and I'm ambitious. Like, well, like a Benji Franklin in Brooklyn. Yeah. Right where the elevator turns in and goes over the bridge. Brooklyn, right by the elevator. And I'm 16. And I'm ambitious. Yeah. 16 and have I got ambitions? Go on, I bet you a million bucks, five to two, that Harden and that guy Coolidge winning a breeze. Go on, you ain't got two bits. Yeah? <laughs> hey, look who's talking. Boy, that's the job. President, sitting in a White House, 75,000 smackaroos every payday. Boy, that's the job. Go on, lots of troubles. Vice President, that's the one, boy. Do nothing, say nothing. 50,000, just like that. Go on, he don't get that much. He does, too. You're nuts. Hey, Sam, Sam, you know. How much the Vice President get? How much, huh? huh? How much, huh? What? Look what? at that dope. He ain't even listening. Sam, what's the matter with you? Talking to you. You ain't even listening. I was thinking. So what was you thinking? So what was so important? Uh, n- nothing. Go on, spell it. What was you thinking? Yeah, yeah, go on. There you What was you thinking? Well... I was thinking... Yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. Well, I was thinking... When I'm managing the champion... He's in again. Yeah, the champion manager. <laughs> Let me use the pink Rolls Royce manager. Look at the manager with holes in his pad. I am the dope manager of champions. Give him room, boys. Give him room. Yeah. I'm telling you, since I was 16 and before, yeah, long before, one idea in the head, manager of a champion. Yeah, funny, ain't it? A kid like they used to say with holes where he sits down, got such an ambition, manager of a champion... Believe it or not, Ripley, huh? Hey, Sammy, Dempsey's looking for you. The whole neighborhood used to laugh at me. Hey, Sammy, text records on the telephone. Yeah, laughing, all of them. It wasn't funny, no. Punk kid, I used to get tears in the eyes. Why should they laugh at me? Everybody's got different ambitions. Sure, why not? One kid wants to be a general. Another kid wants to have a lot of girls. Another kid wants maybe to, well, to go flying like a bird. All right, that's all right. Everybody, like they say, to his own ideas. So I had an idea. I wanted to be a guy who'd make a champion. Yeah, like Kearns made out of Dempsey. Pick up a good, strong kid someplace. Show him this and this. Pick his spots for him. Work the angles. Pretty soon have him in the garden. Knocking him flatter than the backside of a sewer lid. Wake him up from ten buck prices to the hundreds. To the thousands. Yeah, why not? Why not? Manager of champions. Why not? I'm asking you. Sammy, go get a job. My pa said, Sammy, go get a job. Sammy, go get a job. Job? I was looking for a job. Hanging around with loafers in them gymnasiums. Looking for a guy. Hanging around places with fighting, fighting, cheap bummers always fighting. The guy to make a champion. Sammy, get a job. 
Sammy, get a job. Yeah, my pa, over and over, get a job, a job. I was looking. Harder, I tell you, than the guy that's got two wives and 15 hungry kids. Every stinking gym in town and walking way out of town. Jersey City, City Island, Passaic, all the way to Rockaway. Every place there was a gym, a two-bit fight show, looking for the guy that'd make a champion. The guy that'd make me manager of a champion. Loafer. I'm 17. Bummer. I'm 18. No good. 19, 20. Get out of my house. What good are you? 21, 22. How do I live? Don't ask me. A dollar here, a dollar there, working for all the big shots in the racket at the fight camps, in the corners, handling the water bottles and the sponges, bringing them coffee, bringing them good luck, shoved around and kicked around. Okay, that's all right. What's the difference? Learning all the angles, every angle. Who the politicians are to play ball with? Who runs the garden from the inside and sets the big fights? Who cuts in to make a champion? What newspaper big shots will build up a palooka in the headlines for? And for how much, you know? Who'll take a dive to build up your boy's reputation? Learning all the angles, yeah. Learning for the day when I had found him. The guy, the one who'd make me manager of a champion. You got any idea how many fights I went to looking for that right guy? You know how many fights and how many jerkwater places a guy can see in one year, two years, three years, four? Funny, ain't it? Living through the years I was. When guys my age are looking too, yeah, all the guys are looking, but for girls. Yeah, girls for fun and girls for wives. But me, have I got time? No. Got just time for looking out for him. The guy. The right guy. Oh, there's plenty with the fists to look at. Black boys, white ones, brown ones, sluggers that come in way wide open. Dancers that throw their mitts like they was cream puffs. Plenty to look at. Hundreds of them going slug nutty and hungry and getting ears like hunks of cabbage. Waiting for a break. But none of them for me. No, not a one. Well, not the one. So I keep on working here and working there and looking. So one night I'm in town in Pensy. Bells. I hear bells. What? And then it catches at my throat. It's New Year. Yeah, caught up to me all at once, just like that, another year. I stand there looking at them, laughing, jumping. I'm cold, all of a sudden cold. I go into a doorway, stand there looking at them, and believe me, I don't see him. All I see, all I know is another year's gone, and I ain't found him. I'm nobody, nothing. I ain't found him. Tickets to the benefit fight, mister? Tickets? Fight? I look around. I'm standing in the hall, people moving in, a big sign. Amateur fights tonight, big benefit. Funny, ain't it? New Year's night, and there I'm standing. Tickets to the benefit fight, mister? So I buy a ticket. Go inside. So you're smart. You guessed it. Well, it don't take no brain like a Napoleon. Sure, I found him. Yeah, he was there in the ring just when I walked in. One minute, two minutes, three minutes, and I knew it. It was him. Yeah, him. Maybe you don't care about nothing. Maybe you never look for nothing. Maybe you go along and everything's jake and smooth and easy. Okay, then this don't mean a thing. But if you ever wanted something, see? A drink, a dame, a kid, a break, you'll know. There I was, see? New Year's Eve, tired, tired, ready to bust right down, quit, blow my top. And there he was. 
Pleased to meet you, Mr. Miller. What can I tell you about him? From New York. Oh, say, you've come a long way. Bill? Well, like I always see them, big and shoulders, small and hips, and tall and lanky. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, honest, I was lucky knocking him out. And fast? Say, when he moved, you couldn't see him. In, sock, and out. And you couldn't lay a glove on him, not if you threw a hundred pairs with fifty guys to throw him. Make a business of it? Fight professional? Well, I, I hadn't thought much about it, mister. Yeah, him all right. Three minutes and knew it like St. Peter himself made out an affidavit. Champion stuff and me, the manager of a champion. Oh, no, really, thanks, Mr. Miller, but I, I don't think I want to make a living out of fighting. But he didn't want to fight. I mean, not for dough. Can you beat it? Not for dough? I, I appreciate everything you said, Mr. Miller, but, well, you don't understand the situation. Me, sure, I'm handy with my fists, but... That's not what I want to do. Fight for fun, sure. You know, charity, but not for money. Oh, I haven't been studying and working all these years just to use my hands for knocking guys down for a count of ten. No, sir. What have I been studying? Well, it doesn't make much difference, does it? I mean, well, all right. I will tell you. Art school. That's where I'm going. I'm a painter. <laughs> no. No, I don't belong to any union. I don't even know what you mean. Oh, I get it. No, not that kind of painting. I do mine on canvas. Yeah, just like they put in museums. You're right there, but you're wrong if you think mine go on exhibition. I'm just beginning, learning. And fighting pro and painting pro, well, they don't mix. At least I don't think so, Mr. Miller. I had to argue with him, yeah. Hours and hours of arguing. Can you beat it? Have to argue with a guy to make him champion, richer than the president? Have to talk him into it? Can you beat it? Okay, mister. I guess you win. Where do I sign? So, at last it was done and finished. Finished and beginning. I was managing a fighter. A fighter like you dream about and never is. But there he was. And me, his manager, Sam and Dave. His last name? What's the difference? Dave's enough. And he'd be champion. Absolutely. First fight. Twenty-five bucks. Twelve and a half bucks, Sam? Okay. That'll buy me a lot of paints. Second fight. Okay, Sam. I'll be the richest artist this side of Rembrandt. Third fight. Hundred bucks. Sam, I tell you, it's wrong for an artist to have to pay an income tax. It's wrong, Sam. All wrong. Oh, I brought him along slow and easy. Slow and easy. Pick the right spots. Not too tough, boys. Not too easy. All the small-town fight spots. Let them pick up the answer slow and easy. How the rough ones work. Backhanders and rabbit punches, butters and eye pokers. Learn it slow and learn it all. The way a champion's got to know it all. Hey, Sam, this is Lou. Yeah, listen, I'm calling long distance, so listen quick. I hear you got a boy, a good boy. Well, listen, Sam, I got a proposition. Listen, Sam. Out the sharpshooters. Yeah, don't take long. Read it in the papers, just a couple of lines down in the corner, but they smell out the good ones. Listen, Sam, got a proposition. Wasn't having any part of them, no, sir. Keep Dave out of New York till I was good and ready, and he was good and ready. 
That's the way I figured it. And that's the way it was going to be. Yeah. All figured out. All of it. Up to the very night, they'd lift up his hand and said... It's in your face. You're asking when I'm getting to the point? What's this got to do with a guy going nuts with his eyes wide open, throwing away a hundred grand the way you throw away a, a, a burnout match? Well, I'm getting to the point quick. Yeah, too quick. Because when I talk about it... Listen. He's got a dozen fights stuck away, Dave has, and we made some bucks and everything is rolling right, see? Right. And yet not too right. Slow, see? Much too slow. I mean, the build-up. Easy does it. Easy does it. No, it's sure, sure I know it, but it's slow, see? Awful slow. The days they crawl, the weeks. New York's still awful far away. It's right to do it that way, I know. Yeah, I know it, but it's slow, awful slow. And every day, every week, every fight makes it that much slower. Dave didn't care. Why should he? Had lots of time, but me. Me, I'd been waiting, yeah, all these years, waiting, hungry, shoved and kicked around by all the wise guys. And now I had the guy to put me right on top. I wandered Dave in that garden, see, walking down the aisle with him, wise guys saying... That's Sam Miller, see? He's got the champion. Wandered that, I tell you, wandered it. Me that had nothing. Brooklyn under the elevated. Years of not eating good, just looking and waiting. You couldn't blame me for wanting what I wanted. Faster, faster, fast as I could get it. Sam! A guy came to see me. Got a match for you. Was in Youngstown. Five grand to wind up. Five grand. Five grand to wind up. Fight the soccer. Fifteen rounds. The soccer. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Too good for Dave. Oh, much too good. But Dave was good, too. If, if, if he beat the soccer, they'd want him in the garden, sure. The garden, a couple of fights, then the big one, and... That's Sam Miller, see? He's got the champion. I said, okay, my boy will fight the soccer, sure. Why not? Fight and beat him. Fight in the wind-up, Sam? Well, if you think I'm ready, sure. Why not? So that's the way it was. <laughs> the night, the biggest crowd he'd ever fought in front of. Nervous, Sam? Oh, you are, not me. Got into the ring, and the minute he was in there, I wanted to say, Dave, get out of there. You're not ready. Dave, get out. Ladies and gentlemen, I wind up 50 rounds to Dave, he's too good for you. A punch like, listen, Dave, you're not ready. But I said nothing. Nothing. First round. Take it easy, Dave. Stay away from him, Dave. Third round. All right, Dave. You're doing all right. Fourth round. Dave, you're going fine. Hit him, Dave. There, you've hurt him. Crowd him. In the bed basket. Hit him. Down. He was down. Dave, the soccer caught him coming in between the eyes. Dave, get up. If you don't get up, Dave, everything is down there with you. Dave, get up. Up. He's up. Out on his feet. I'll throw the towel. No. My Dave hit him. My Dave hit him. Sucker's down. Out. Out. He's out. Got so excited like it was happening all over again, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it was. Got up off the floor, the kid did. Right off the floor and knocked the contender out cold. Cold is what I'm going to tell you now. Walked home from the fight, him and me. 
Me walking on air. When this knockout hit the papers in New York, they'd lay the carpet down for me and Dave all the way to the front of the garden. Yeah, walking on air. Me, Sammy Miller. And my champion walking with me. Hotel room. I got a little headache, Sam. I said, all right, lie down. I went over and sat by the window, looking out at the street, the lights. Lights flashing on and off. There'd be lights in front of the garden for him, for me. For me. Sam. He called me. I said, why don't you sleep? I can't sleep. Sam, do me a favor. Turn on the lights. The lights? Sam, didn't you hear me? Turn on the lights. The lights were on. Sam, where are you? Turn on the lights. His eyes were on me, through me, past me. Didn't see me. In a minute I knew the punch that hit him in the head. He couldn't, wouldn't ever. I knew, I knew I'd tell you, knew it sure as if a hundred docs were telling me. Sam, where are you? Why is it so dark? And then I knew something else quick through my head like a light. I knew it. If I stayed with him, finished, done, that's the way I'd be like he was done. Leading him around like a dog leading a blind. Had to get out of there quick. The purse was in my pocket, five grand, threw a thousand on the table and then out, out. Sam, is that you? Why is it so dark? Sam, for God's sake, tell me. Why is it so dark? Sam! New York. I was back. Hiya, Sammy. Different now. Dough. I had plenty of dough. Sure, we can do business, Sammy. I'll sell them for cash. Sure, why not? Bought myself a fighter. You hear that? Bought myself a fighter. Black boy, a comer, right out of the Golden Glove. Champion amateur, yeah. Bought and paid for cash. Do just what you say, boss. You know the rest. Knockout first round, knockout fourth round, decision ten round. Yeah, easy. Just like that. I pay the money, I get a black boy who is better than the best. Easy, just like that. The Black Panther, Sammy Miller's wonder fighter, today signed to fight the champion at the garden. Fight the champion at the garden. So everything's all right, sure. Fight the champion, then my boy, he's champion, sure, and I... I am manager of a champion. That's what I wanted, sure. So everything's all right, yeah. Only one little thing is wrong, yeah. When I lay down at night to sleep, I can't sleep. You want to know why? Sam, why is it so dark? Just that, I hear it. Just that. So I can't sleep. Crazy, huh? Sam, why is it so dark? A man who got what he wants. Sam, why is it so dark? Right up on top, got what he wants. Sam, why is it so dark? A boy who will be the champion, doing the pocket in the bank. Sam, why is it so dark? Not to be able to sleep, that's crazy, ain't it? Sam, why is it so dark? Just a voice in the head, that's all. Sam, why is it so dark? Over and over. Sam, why is it so dark? Conscience. Sam, why is it so dark? What is conscience? Sam, why is it so dark? Just a thought inside my head, that's all. Sam, why is it so dark? Over and over. Sam, why is it so dark? Every night. Sam, why is it so dark? As soon as I'm alone, as soon as I shut my eyes Sam, to why sleep, is it so dark? I can't stand it Sam, no more. Sam, why is it so dark? I gotta find him, I Sam, tell myself. Sam, why is it so dark? Send people out to look. Sam, why is it so dark? Where he was, where he used to live, but no. Gone. Nobody knows where. So every night the same, I close my eyes. Sam, why is it so dark? I can't. I try... No, Davy. Oh, no, no, Davy. <laughs> no. 
so so today I did what I did. The sun was bright. I was walking along the street, and all at once I saw the answer there in front of me. I went up the steps inside. Cool inside and dark. May I help you, my son? My son. He said that to me, Sam Miller, to me. Can I help you, my son? Yes. Help me. Help me. I took from a man the one thing he wanted. To look on the world and put what he saw down with paint on canvas. This I took from him. And so the only thing left for me to do is to give away the one thing I want most in all the world. Take it, Father. For anything you need it. God or people, use it, burn it, just take it. So I gave away my fighter, my hundred thousand, my chance to be a manager of a champion. So they say I'm crazy. Everybody says it. Sammy Miller, he's a dope. Bury him in a ground. Such a fool, he's dead already. A fool? Sure. I, Sam Miller, am a fool. But even a fool can do one thing in his life he knows is right. just heard Mr. Eddie Cantor in Mr. Miller, a play by Arch Obler. Included in the cast with Mr. Cantor was Howard Duff with Leo Cleary, Lester J., Bill Johnstone, Irvin Lee, Elliot Lewis, Lou Merrill, Sidney Miller, and Julian Upton. The orchestra was conducted by Jack Meekin. Sound, Art Fulton and Bill James. Engineer, John Bailey. Next week, as the final broadcast of the special 26-week series, Mr. Paul Muni will appear in a new play by Arch Obler, titled, I Declare War. Because of the unusual nature of this final broadcast, we cordially invite you to listen. Next week, then, Mr. Paul Muni in I Declare War. This will be the 26th in a special series of plays written, produced, and directed for the Mutual Broadcasting System by Arch Obler. To conclude the program this evening, Jack Meekin conducts the orchestra 
in excerpts from an original composition, Memoirs. Mr. Miller, one of Arch Obler's plays, aired in the fall of 1945. You heard it tonight on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. One of the first things you learn about comedy is that most jokes depend on one of four things. Surprise, knavery, mimicry, or stupidity. Well, all of them are on display in nearly every episode of the series Fibber McGee and Molly, and that may account for its exceptionally long run on radio. Here's an example from April 15, 1952. There's a reference to the Mayo Brothers, who, as you might guess, founded the Mayo Clinic. The mention shows up in this installment of NBC's Fibber McGee and Molly. The Pet Milk Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> the first evaporated milk, Pet Milk, presents Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Gil Stratton Jr., Gloria McMillan, Cliff Arquette, Lou Krugman, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Keith Fowler and directed by Max Hutto with music by the Kingsmen and Billy Mills Orchestra. <laughs> At 79 Wistful Vista, the start of a new day is somewhat like the start of a race. The wife lines up at the kitchen stove, the husband lines up at the breakfast table, and they're off at the home of Fibber McGee and Molly. What's holding up breakfast, kiddo? Let's eat. I'm as hungry as a last year's bird's nest. I'm as empty as a last year's bird's nest. <laughs> You better do them all twice. <laughs> now, McGee, we just got downstairs, and I barely started to boil the water for the eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Please hold your horses that you eat like. <laughs> well, I'm as hungry as a horse, I'll admit that. And if you got a bale of hay handy to tide me over... Now, you... relax a minute. Turn on the radio. Listen to some music. Okay. 
If I'm going to starve to death, I might as well do it to music. WVIS has records. Well, folks, that was Ronnie Bay, the tearful tenor, with his latest recording, The Big Black Cloud That Balled. <laughs> Glad I missed that one. They all weep these days, don't they? Yeah, it seems to be a requirement. No sob, no job. The last 15 minutes of recorded music was brought to you by Cheap Charlie Morgan's Cut-Rate Clothing Store. Cheap Charlie sells clothes cheap because the clothes at Cheap Charlie's are cheap clothes. (laughs) Very sincere commercial. The next group of records will be presented through the courtesy of Tony Ippolito, the genial, jovial proprietor of Tony's Roma Restaurant at 14th and Oak. Today, Tony has an important announcement to make. More talk. Heavenly day. He's decided to give his customers a break and serve them all the food they can eat for just one dollar. Listen for further details after the next recorded selection, which will be, You Got Very Damp When I Cried Over You. (laughs) Sung by Lonnie J. the Blubbering Baritone. Hey, you hear that? I don't blame you for turning it off, dearie. I wouldn't enjoy that one either. Huh, that ain't why I cut it off. Didn't you hear what he said about all you can eat for a buck at the Roma restaurant? Yes, I did. Well, what are we waiting for? We're going there to eat breakfast? Well, why not? This is a chance of a lifetime, kiddo. Single-handed, I'm going to eat enough to put genial, jovial Tony clean out of business. Grab your hat. I'll grab my coat, and we'll both grab a streetcar. Goodness, this is a terrible streetcar. The noise it makes. Yeah, sounds like a keg of nails rolling down the Rocky Mountains. But boy, when I think of the food I'm going to eat for one bucket. All three of you next. All three of you in the Cross Fran. And round the Cross Fran. Did you ever notice that conductor, McGee? He has a sort of an accent, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, at least. He learned to talk that way as a child, they tell me. Really? Had a very interesting family. His father was a shoemaker and always talked through a mouthful of nails, and his mother was a tobacco auctioneer. With that background, he was a saint. Talk about the Travers, next. Talk about the Travers. Connect with Nevis Travers and all the earth with them. Well, we should be getting near the Roma restaurant, dearie. It's along here someplace. Yeah, I'll check with the conductor. Hey, bud, how far is the Roma restaurant? Almost all the Roma restaurant, Mac. Call of Chibigan. Okay? <laughs> Oh, thanks a lot, bud. It's the next stop, Molly. Well, how on earth did you figure that out? I looked out the window. <laughs> Just beyond Kramer's drugstore, and there's Kramer's now. Well, if I had to figure Call that... for Lazimuk next. Call for Lazimuk. Change for nerf. <laughs> Come on, this is it. Call for Lazimuk. Call out for Call for Lazimuk. Yes, sir. Watch it, Molly. Give me your hand. What step, please? Take the first model test company. Board! <laughs> now we're right in front of the place, kiddo. Come on, let's get in and grab a table. My, the Roma hasn't changed much since the last time we were here. No, nothing new but the prices, kiddo. At these prices, all we... Oh, America, look who's here. It's the Signora McGee and Bellissima Signora. I kiss your hand. Not mine, you don't. <laughs> a long time to see you, Wallo. Yeah. Here, I give you the best table in the house. Well, thank you, Tony. This is so nice. You betcha my life. You know my motto, Signora. Make it a Roma, you hold it. 
Now, I take you order myself in a person. Oh, fine. Thanks, Tony. Well, what do you have, Molly? Well, toast and coffee and two medium boiled eggs. Toast and coffee, boiled eggs. I got them done. Well, put down some biscuits, a few muffins, a pot of chocolate, uh, some coffee, two fried eggs, two scrambled eggs, two poached eggs, six strips of bacon, uh, seven strips of bacon, side of country sausage, stack of hotcakes, a waffle, a couple of grapefruit, and an order of French fries. How many friends you expect? None. That's for me, Tony. I'm sort of hungry today. You're not just a whistle and a Dixie kid. I'll go make an order. McGee, I'm ashamed of you. Just because the food only costs a dollar, you don't have to stuff yourself like a pelican turned loose in a tank full of guppies. My gosh, kiddo, a bargain ain't a bargain if you don't take advantage of it. Don't worry about me stuffing myself. I've always been a hearty eater. You ain't a whistling Dixie, kiddo. Even when I was a kid, I was no slouch. In fact, I was only eight years old when I entered a pie-eating contest at the old settler's picnic against a bunch of full-grown men. There's a prize for the one who ate 20 pies first, and I'd have won it except for a slight misunderstanding. A misunderstanding? Yeah, I thought the paper plates they served the pies on were the bottom crusts. (laughs) Eating them kind of slowed me down. Well, something better slow you down today. That breakfast you just ordered. Oh, look who just came in. Hello, Mr. Mayor. Oh, hi, Latrell. Oh, good morning, Molly. Hello, McGee. Having a little breakfast? He's having a lot of breakfast, Mr. Mayor. Will you join us? Oh, thank you, Molly. I can't stay. I just dropped in to reserve a table for dinner tonight. Miss Newell and myself. Oh, well, you picked a good place to bring her to, Latrell. You know the slogan here. If she eats you out of house and home, bring her down to Tony's Roma. <laughs> McGee, isn't it, Mr. Mayor? Yes. As a matter of fact, though, Miss Newell doesn't have a large appetite at all. Oh? Among her friends, she has a reputation for being a light eater. No kidding, a light eater, huh? How'd she ever pick up a habit like that, Mr. <laughs> a habit like what, McGee? Eating lights, Mr. Mayor. Yes. Does she just take them right out of their sockets and chew them up, or does she parboil them first? No, 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 not at all, Molly. I'm afraid you misunderstood me. <laughs> she must have a picnic around Christmas time, Latrice. <laughs> Somebody else, everybody else eating candy and popcorn balls, and she just sits there chomping on a string of lights. <laughs> oh, it must make it pretty hard to decorate the tree if she keeps chewing up the light bulbs all the time, because <laughs> there's never enough anyway, just, you know. Just, just, just a minute, Molly. Please. I didn't say that Miss Newell chews light bulbs. She doesn't at all. Oh, she just gulps them down whole like eating oysters, does she? Yes, yes. Uh, no, no, no. She Boy, doesn't. I'd like I... to see that. Takes a pretty big mouth type of dame to swallow a light bulb, boy, because even if... Lillian is not a big mouth anything. Now, look, this is getting very hey, much out of hand. Say, I... uh, speaking of a big mouth, <laughs> McGee got a bowling ball stuck in his mouth once. <laughs> that was a billiard ball, Molly. Oh, yes, a billiard ball. <laughs> Uh, did Miss Newell ever eat any billiard balls, Mr. Mayor? Because they ought to taste better than these. Well, no, of course not. Look, when I said Miss Newell is a light eater, I simply meant she has a delicate appetite. Oh, I a delicate have... appetite? She keeps stuffing herself with old light bulbs between meals. She's bound to lose her appetite. No wonder she... she... doesn't light herself with old stuff balls. Stuff herself with old lighter blubs. Lighter blubs. Come! Miss Newell never wallowed a slight club. Swallowed a light cup in her stripe. Light! I really said the girl is a wife beater! A life beater! Life beater! I didn't say anything of you were the one! It was just I was just it was just
Yes, boy? You've often said you'd like a job in my office. There'll be an opening in the city hall tomorrow, and you're the man I'd like to put in it. Yes, swell. What do you call it? The elevator shaft. Good day. Men and the moon was yellow. The moon was yellow, and the night was young. A smile brought us together, and I was wondering whether we'd meet again someday. The moon was I feel fine. Well, it's amazing. That's all I can say. Hmm? If the average person ate that much, he'd have to be carried out of here by two men. Hmm? The Mayo Brothers. <laughs> Gosh, I didn't eat so much. Only eggs, bacon, ham, sausage, hotcakes, waffles, cereal. Hey, wait a minute. I didn't have any cereal. Hey, Tony. You yell out loud for me, senor? <laughs> yeah, I forgot to order cereal. Bring me some hot oatmeal. Uh, sorry, senor. I don't serve cereal now because while you ate, it stopped being breakfast time. Now is lunch time. Oh. Oh, lunch time. Well, that's okay. Give me a lunch menu. McGee. What's wrong, kiddo? I always eat lunch. Well, here's a lunch menu. I recommend the spaghetti and a meatball. Good. I'll take them. And bring me the veal scallopini, the beef stew, a green salad, side order of raviola, and a stack of peaches. <laughs> Well, I guess that'll hold me for now, Tony. I think you make a good guess. <laughs> now I go breaking the news to the cook. <laughs> oh, McGee, this is incredible. Right on top of that huge breakfast you ordered. Oh, hello, Mrs. McGee, Mr. McGee. Oh. Well, Debbie Lynn. Hello, dear. Hi, Debbie. Where's your boyfriend? Oh, hi, Ed. Pull up a chair, kids. Oh, we've already eaten, Mr. McGee. Thanks. Huh? Yes, and besides, Ed has to get back to his job. If he's late, Mr. Kramer throws a fit. 
How come you're eating here, Ed? I thought you got your food at the drugstore for free. Oh, I do, sir, but some days I just can't face it. Yeah? It's always sandwiches, sandwiches, sandwiches. <laughs> I'm getting so I can't look a Swiss in the rye anymore. <laughs> well, don't you worry, Ed. I'm taking the domestic science course at school, you know, and after we're married, I'll cook all your meals. I hope so. <laughs> How are you getting along with the course, Debbie? Well, my meat and vegetable and dessert grades haven't been too good, Mrs. McGee. In fact, there's only one thing I've made an A on. What's that? Well, sandwiches. <laughs> well, uh, I'd better get back to work, Mr. McGee. Ah, that's the spirit, Ed. You work hard, boy, and save your money. One of these days, you'll have yourself a stack. Yes, sir. You know what the stack will be, don't you? Hmm? Sandwiches. Huh. Come on, Debbie. <laughs> Goodbye. Now, Bye. Come on, kid. Look at him holding hands, McGee. Aren't they cute? So in love. Yeah. And speaking of love, Molly. Yes, dearie, yes. I'd love to eat here every day. <laughs> Just think. Breakfast and lunch for only a buck. That's it. I say something wrong? Skip it. Oh. My goodness. If I ever thought I'd have to play second fiddle to a platter of spaghetti and meatballs. Hello, Molly. Hi, pal. Hello, Mr. Wilcox. Hi, Junior. Looks like everybody's eating at Tony's today, and I don't blame him. Pull up a chair. Oh, thanks, pal. But I'm on my way to put a call to Hollywood and close a big deal. Oh? I saw you and Molly through the window and dashed in to tell you about it. Well, who are you calling in Hollywood, Mr. Wilcox? Walt Disney. Walt Disney? Yeah, oh. I've got a great story for him. Oh. It's a sort of a sequel to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. What's the name of your epic? Coffee Black and the Two Dwarfs. Would you like to hear it? Is there any way of stopping you? No. Go ahead. All right, now listen to this. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, there was a very attractive girl named Coffee Black. And all her life, she dreamed of being the favorite of the great Prince John. Prince John? Yes, his full name was John Q. Public. Oh, yes, I've heard of him. Well, Prince John Q. Public was fond of Coffee Black, but not really crazy about her. Mm -hmm. To him, she seemed to like something. You sure you didn't swipe this from Grimm's fairy tales, Junior? <laughs> Sounds pretty grim to me. Nice <laughs> Go ahead, Mr. Wilcox. Well, sir, one day Coffee Black was walking in the woods, and she came to a little house. And there she found two dwarfs, Lumpy and Milky. Uh-oh. I'm already suspicious of that last one. Well, Coffee Black told them how she wanted to captivate Prince John Public, and they agreed to help her. Lumpy said, I can make you sweeter. And little Coffee said, go right ahead, sugar. You see, Lumpy is really a lump of sugar. Cute oh. dialogue, huh? Yeah, too cute for words. <laughs> At least any words I can say out loud. Well, Lumpy made her sweeter, but the prince still didn't fall for coffee black. Oh? So she went back to the dwarfs, and Milky said, I'll make you richer and lovelier. And coffee said, Milky, you're a pet. Pet Milky, get it? <laughs> yeah, I get it, but I ain't sure I want it. <laughs> well... Milky made Coffee Black richer and lovelier with a marvelous creamy complexion. And when Prince John Public saw her, he said, My pet, you're for me. Oh. And the moral of this story is, if you want coffee fit for a prince, always use pet milk to give your coffee that fine creamy color and satisfying goodness every coffee lover loves. And you'll drink happily ever after. You expect to sell that to Disney? Why, of course. Oh? It may not be art, but it certainly is commercial. <laughs> Wasn't that a cute story, dearie? You know, he has a hold talent... Hold it, kiddo, hold it. Here comes the food. Oh, oh, look at that. What a magnificent lunch you're coming up. Wow. Just the feast you rise on those magnificent meatballs. Oh, boy. I go bring the veal scallopini, the salad and all the rest. Oh, Just look at that, Molly. 
There's a lunch fit for a king. That's fit for about four kings. <laughs> and a jack. Huh? Look, J- uh, J- uh, McGee, I'm going to run over to the beauty parlor while you're eating. Just the sight of all that. Oh, food. don't run out on a bargain like this, Molly. You sure you can't eat some more? I'll feed you all you want today, kiddo. Well, frankly, dearie, I'm fed up. Oh. I'll see you later. Oh, what's the matter with her? I don't get it. Billy Mills in the orchestra and the Newland Rang. Well, give me another cup of coffee while I'm waiting for Molly, I guess. Cup of coffee number 17, a coming up. <laughs> you can clear away these dishes, too, whenever you want to. I couldn't eat another bite. Good. Of lunch, that is. As soon as Molly gets here, we'll probably order some dinner. You know, there's a one thing good about you, McGee. Your appetite. Yeah. I never see... Ah, here's the senora now. Sit down, Mrs. McGee. Thank you, Tony. Well, I see you're still here, dearie. Yep. Just killing time till you got back, Tootsie. I'll bet you're killing the cook, too. Uh, don't you worry about the cook, Mrs. McGee. I'll bring you the dinner man, your son, your, in case you get hungry. Heavenly days, McGee. How can you possibly pack away any more food? Well, frankly, I don't know, but this wasn't my idea, you know. It was Tony's idea to give his customers all they can eat for a dollar. Who am I to disappoint a guy that's got his heart set on me eating all I want? Hello there, kids! Well, hello, Mr. Oldtimer. Hi, Oldtimer. What you doing here, kids? Eating or stutting? <laughs> well, a little of both, Mr. Oldtimer. Will you join us? Thank you, daughter. I'm just taking a shortcut through here. I'm on the way to pick up my girlfriend, Bessie. Oh, Bessie. We haven't seen Bessie lately. How is she these days? Oh, she's fine, daughter. Thank your condition. 
healthier than a brewery horse and just about as pretty. <laughs> yeah, we're going on our annual family picnic at Dugan's Lake today. Family picnic, eh? Yep, me and Papa and Bessie and her mama. That's nice. Last year's was a real dinger. Ain't had so much fun since you could buy things for a nickel. <laughs> well, what did you do? Oh, we had us a picnic at the picnic, daughter. First, there was a baseball game between the old men and the young men. Played 50 innings to a scoreless tie. No scores at all? Nope. Papa was the entire old man's team, and I was the young man's team. Yeah. We'd get on base all right, but we couldn't drive ourselves in. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a fascinating game. Well, sir... After we got through the ball game, we ate. Oh. Then we frolicked in the lake for a spell, and Bessie and her mama said they'd bury me in the sand. Oh, how cute. You started burying me, but right in the middle of it, I made a startling discovery. I got up and took off like a quail. Why, old-timer? Well, I noticed just Bessie was covering me up. Yeah? Her mama had a hammer and a chisel and was carving me a headstone. <laughs> oh, I've often wondered where they dug that guy up, and now I'm beginning to wonder why. He's the... Now, look, McGee, Tony's coming with the dinner menu, but I want you to send it back. Look at your belt. You can't eat any more. You're so right. Thank the man and pay him, and let's go home. Well, here's the dinner menu, McGee. The special for tonight. Now, don't tell me, Tony. Don't tell me. I'm quitting, boy. I just realized I've had enough. I'm very disappointed, senor. Yeah? I just tell my cook to get ready with a dinner and a stand by when a McGee blows up. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm stuffed. I want to congratulate you on a swell advertising idea, though, Tony. That gimmick of all you can eat for a dollar is the greatest thing I ever heard of. As soon as that catches on, you'll pack this joint. Yes, Tony. You'll make everything but money. Yeah. yeah I'm glad you like the idea. I hope you both come back tomorrow when the offer starts. Tomorrow? I heard it on the radio today, and that's why I came down here. I guess you don't listen to the whole announcement, McGee. Huh? Tomorrow, all you can eat for a dollar. Today, here's a you check. Oh, my gosh. Oh, look at that. $17.65. Oh, this, this is inflation. back up to bed. What are you doing out there in the dark? Oh, nothing. McGee, for good heaven's sake, get away from that icebox. Icebox? Oh, I thought that was the medicine chest. <laughs> good night. Good night, all. The first evaporated milk, pet milk, brings you Fibber McGee and Molly each week at this time. Be with us again next Tuesday night, won't you? Fibber McGee and Molly, an episode aired in the spring of 1952, coming to you tonight from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org.
org. In the years following VJ Day, 77 years ago on this date, radio shows often took advantage of the post-World War II period to air stories about previously secret wartime happenings. We heard one example just last month, a drama that turned on the secret development of radar. And here's another one. It's about spy stuff, and appropriately, it comes from a series called Cloak and Dagger. The initials OSS refer to the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency. And you'll hear the Bosch mentioned. That was an Allied nickname in both world wars for the German military. From May 28, 1950, and NBC, it's the episode called The Trojan Horse from Cloak and Dagger. Are you willing to undertake a dangerous mission behind the enemy lines, knowing you may never return alive? What you have just heard is the question asked during the war to agents of the OSS, ordinary citizens who to this question answered, yes. This is Cloak and Dagger. Espionage, international intrigue. These are the weapons of the OSS. Today's story, The Trojan Horse, is suggested by actual incidents recorded in the Washington files of the Office of Strategic Services. A story that can now be told. August 1942. Report to OSS headquarters in Casablanca from Agent Henri Fontaine in France. Contact with girl Gabrielle Monet was made in the Bluebeard Cafe in Paris. I went there alone on the evening of the 15th and sent her a note with a waiter asking her to come to my table when she'd finished her song. Then I sat and waited. German officers were spread about the room as they were spread about all of occupied France. (laughs) I wondered what they would say if they knew why I had come. You send me this note, eh? Oui, mademoiselle. Will you join me? Why not? I drink with anyone these days. What will you have, eh? What have you? Let me taste from your glass. It is very bad wine. Huh? <laughs> you are right. Oh, the only time a girl may get good wine nowadays is when she drinks with the Bosch. Ah, never mind, I'm not thirsty. I enjoyed your song. Is that what you wanted to tell me? I think you are wasting your time here in Paris. Ah, Paris is wasting her time on Paris these days. I can offer you a better position in Casablanca. What did you say? Who are you? My name is Henri Fontaine. I, too, have a good position 
with the American OSS in North Africa. What are you saying? Before the Germans came to France, I was a poor poet. They did me a service. Now I'm a rich spy. You sit here in a room full of Germans and tell me this? What makes you think I will believe you? What makes you think I won't turn you over to the Germans if I do, eh? <laughs> Mademoiselle, I am not such a brave man. Neither am I a fool. We have kept you under observation for months. We know you better than you know yourself. Is there anything you'd like to know about yourself? What do you want of me? On our side, we have only the very best. Forgerers, counterfeiters, cutthroats, and uh, spies. <laughs> Will you join us? Ah, uh, just tell me what you want me to do. Agent Henri Fontaine in France to Agent Steve Lytel in Casablanca. Arrangements have been made to transport the girl Gabrielle Monet to the south of France and then to Casablanca. Awaiting further instructions. Over. Bonjour. The roses will bloom early this year, I think. Oui, but uh, not too early, I hope. Good, good. I have been waiting for you. It is dark. I can't see you well. Is the girl with you? She is here. Gabby, say something so our friend will know you are here. I am tired. <laughs> Did you have difficulty reaching my safe in Paris? Uh, not too much. With swarms of displaced persons all over France to mingle with. And a slight bit of help along the way from the underground. It, it was not too bad. Good, good. Now follow me. I will take you to the fishing school. But I'm I know, so... I know you're tired. Cheer up, Gabby. You'll have a nice long trip by water to rest up. Oh. And then another nice long trip by auto to oh. Casablanca. Oh, I like automobiles. In the old days, I like nothing better than a, a pleasant ride. But Gabi did not like the automobile trip to Casablanca. It was probably nothing like the old days. I drove up front alone while she was fitting the trunk of the car behind gasoline drums. <laughs> there were gunny sacks and a Moroccan rug thrown over her. Across everything, a heavy canvas cover lashed down with just enough air left for her to breathe. We drove that way over rough roads for several hours. When it got dark... I pulled over to a side lane and let her out. Gabby, come out, come out. Oh, oh, my back. It is broken. I, I will gladly um, massage it for you. Uh, you are too kind. Not at all. No, thank you. Pity. Why did we stop? To give you a chance to uh, stretch your legs. And a cigarette, if oh, you want one. Oh, I would die for one. Give, 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 give. I have one lit here. Ah. Oh, mille merci. You see? 
I try to be gentle. <laughs> I try to make up for the inconvenience I am causing ah, you. Ah, ça c'est drôle. I remember what another poet once said. A German, by the way, but uh, not a Nazi. His name was Goethe. What did he say? He said, be gentle with women. Remember, they were made from a broken rib. <laughs> I am not amused. I'm sorry. You are always smiling. Do you enjoy the war, huh? I am a poet. There is poetic excitement in being behind the lines, working underground. I enjoy being a spy. Well, I am no Matahari. You will do. You still have told me nothing. Why did they send for me? You remember a German named Paul Vogel? Paul? What do you know of him? Tell me. Not now. The time is late. But I must Throw know. Away your Why did you mention me? I said later. We have a long journey ahead. If we pass the border post, I will tell you. If we do not, <laughs> the words and minutes would only be wasted. I thought I would never reach the border. It's been a long trip. Where are you headed? Casablanca. You anything to declare? No, nothing. Let me see your passport. Here you are. All of a sudden, I spotted a small black dog sniffing and whining at the trunk of the car where Gabriel was hidden. The customs officer had not noticed him, and I knew I had to find some way to keep him from noticing. Ah, one becomes thief after so long a ride. While he looked over my passport, I went to the rear of the car, picked up the dog by the scruff of the neck, and uh, started to pet him. Your passport seems to be in order, but what's the matter with Joff? <laughs> Nothing. Perhaps he does not like to be picked up. No. If he did, he wouldn't try to bite you. Better put him down. I knew if I put Joff down, he'd go back to sniffing around that trunk. I felt like strangling that cute little black puppy. Well, put him down. I, uh, I have taken a fancy to him. Um... How do you feel about selling him to me, eh? Huh? Well, I... Uh, you, you are serious, monsieur? Oui, I like him. Come, come, how much, eh? Oh, take him. There are two more like him around somewhere. Uh, thank you. He will liven up the journey. Wait. Huh? Before you go. Yes? What is in your trunk? Huh? I said what is in your trunk. Let me put the dog in the car and then I will show you. The trunk. I will show you. You see? Gasoline drums. Yes, I see. Very well. Close the trunk. I may go? Of course. Thank you again for Joff. August 27, 1942. Report to OSS headquarters in Washington from Agent Steve Lytell in Casablanca. Fontaine and the girl arrived. I knew as soon as she walked in that Paul Vogel could not have forgotten her. I only hoped her memories of him weren't too strong. 
Now, as you know, Miss Monet, this is an international zone. We are, in effect, neutrals. In Casablanca, we pass each other in the streets. Germans, Americans, Vichy, and Free French. You can imagine what a hotbed of international intrigue we have here. Oh, I, I know nothing of that kind of intrigue. Then perhaps we can broaden your horizon. Hold it, Henri. Now, listen to me, Yabby. The head of the German Armistice Commission in Casablanca is a man named Paul Vogel. Does that name mean anything to you? We knew each other once, before the war. Knew each other? He was an attaché to the German consulate in Paris. You almost married him once, isn't that so? That is my business. I'm afraid we've made it our business. Now, Gabby, we've kept close watch on you these past months, and we're sure that you're no Nazi or Vichy sympathizer. Oh, I hate them all for what they are doing to France. But Vogel, what are your feelings toward I, him? Well, I haven't seen him in years. That's not answering my question. If he is a Nazi, I have no feelings toward him. All right, then. Now, the open secret here in North Africa is the planned American invasion. The closed secret is where and when. Now, that's what Paul Vogel wants to find out for German headquarters. Well, I still don't understand what I... You're t- to tell him, Cherie. What? Henri's right. You're to take up this friendship with him once more. What? Give him all the information he wants. You'll what? get it direct from us. What? Now, Give rest assured it'll be the wrong information. You understand now? Ah, uh, I'm beginning to. Good. We have a job for you at the Three Lanterns Cafe. Now, starting tomorrow... Agent Henri Fontaine and I were at the Three Lanterns Cafe the next night when Gabrielle opened there. The cafe was packed, but even the crowd around the bar, officers with ribbon chests, waterfront riffraff, and black marketeers, all of them were quiet when she sang. She was wearing a red dress. In the spotlight, her face looked smaller and whiter, and her hair looked blacker. There wasn't a man in the room who could take his eyes off her. I wondered how soon it would be before Paul Vogel came in and saw her, too. Uh, a girl like that could make you forget the war, eh, Steve? I've got a wife back in Syracuse. <laughs> can she wear red like that? My wife can be trusted. And this girl? She and Vogel were pretty close in the old days. I know my own kind. She can be trusted. I hope you're right. The success of the whole American invasion may hinge on it. A lot depends on how hard Vogel falls for that little bait up there on the bandstand. Steve, hmm? Vogel, he's just come in. That's all I wanted to see. Come on, let's get out of here. Hey, excuse us, uh, pardon, pardon. This table is free, waiter. It will do. We are Vogel. You wish to see the wine list? Oh, I... That girl. How long has she been here? Uh, the singer, you mean? She started only tonight. Tell her to come to this table when she's finished. You understand? We <laughs> oui, I understand. No, you don't. You only think you do. Go tell her what I said. And bring a bottle of your best wine.
dear, it was you, Paul, when the waiter came to me. <laughs> How like you to walk back into my life so quietly after making so violent an exit. Ah, the world is small after all, Gabby. I'm amazed to find you in Casablanca. I can say the same of you. What are you doing here? I arrived here a few days ago, but I've been in North Africa for months. Tangier, Oran, Tunis, singing. How were you able to leave France yeah. after the occupation? You should know how well I always got along with Germans. Hmm. You don't seem angry with me any longer, Liebchen. After that last time, six years ago... Life is too short to be angry for too long at anyone. Besides, I was a fool to have been jealous over that silly blonde with the bad legs. I've even forgotten her name. Suzanne. Aha! Uh-huh. I see you have not forgotten. <laughs> oh, it's her wine. Gabby, how good it is to be with you again. How good it is to be with you, Paul. Ah. For you? For me. Now. We will drink to what is to be, Liebchen. What is to be? You could have no better guide through Casablanca than I, Gavi. Come, what else would you like me to buy you from the marketplace? A scarf, perhaps? A gold scarf to put around your hair, yeah. Have you taken many girls to the marketplace, oh. huh? <laughs> Will you be forever jealous of me, Liebling? What is it, the French in you? Ah, it is the woman in me. <laughs> I imagine you are in great demand by the women here. The chief of the German armistice commission. How did you know that? I know more than you think. Oh? Would it interest you to know the name of one of the most important American agents in North Africa? Who? Steve Lytell. What do you know of him? I know him. And he knows the details of the planned American invasion. Come. I will buy you a gold scarf. Well, have you nothing to say of what I just told you? I knew that already. I, too, have agents. However, thank you for telling me. I can promise you more than a gold scarf if you find out additional information for me. Is this possible? It might be. Very possible. Agent Lytell in Casablanca to OSS in Washington. The girl, Gabrielle Monet, has been in the paid employ of the German government here for several weeks, according to our plan and we'll transmit to them the Dakar cover project. September 1942. Report to OSS headquarters from Agent Monet. I had a feeling that things were going too smoothly. I seemed to be holding my breath, waiting for something to go wrong. And on the night of the 29th, it did. Paul Vogel was in my room above the cafe... We were listening to my record of our favorite song. You'll have to go soon. It is late. Forget the time. Who would 
think it would come to this again, Gary. After that day in Paris, when we quarreled so. I remember that day. Mm. We showed poor judgment to argue out of doors. It was raining. I got a terrible cold in the nose. Poor Gabi. Let me kiss that poor nose. But before you do, I I have a paper for you in my purse. Dates when high officials will be in Casablanca. Stay I'll get a it moment. for you. I want to uh, talk to you. you. You're hurting my arm. Let Germany me go, Germany is Paul. paying you well for this information know, you are giving Paul, us. I know, please. Some of it is useful uh, information, but none of it uh, is as important as I would like. I will try to do better. You had better do better. You know what would happen, Gabi, if I found out you were crossing me. I would not cross you. It is nothing oh, for me to my... twist your arm oh. like this. Such a small arm. Think what I could do if I really tried to hurt you. You hurt me now because you don't trust me. What do you want? You claim to know this American like that. I do. You claim you get your information from I him. Do. Is that all he gives you? What about his love? Oh. Does he give you that too? Paul, the shoe is on the other foot. Now it is you who are jealous. <laughs> oh, how foolish of you. Think. Would I lie to you? Coming. Coming. Oh, coming. If you ever lie to me, I, I would rather see you dead at my feet than standing, looking at me, and lying. You hear what I say? Yes. Yes, I hear. I hear. I must keep my head clear to think of what you have just told me. Now are you satisfied that I am earning my money? Mm-hmm. Dakar. So the Americans will land in a few weeks at Dakar. Very likely. Very likely. Dakar is strategically important. It will be more important if the German fleet is there to stop the invasion. Yeah, yeah. That bungled attempt at a landing under de Gaulle's leadership failed... So the Americans probably figure we would not dream that they would try it again in the same place. (laughs) One American, Steve Lytell, does not dream you know all this. Hmm. Are you going to tell German headquarters? But of course, this is something they will want to know. He believes it, Steve. Every word of it. Good. The German fleet is being sent to stop the invasion at Dakar. Good, Gabby. Good work. Steve, radio report. Justin from Gibraltar. What is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me tell it, Joff. General Clark will rendezvous on October 21st at Point Agreed near Alger. You know what that means? Final preparations for the Iran invasion. Nothing must go wrong now. Nothing. 
November 4, 1942. Something very wrong happened. Paul came to my room just before I was ready to go downstairs to the cafe. Paul! Gabby, your friend Lytel has been playing you for a fool. Do you hear what I say? I don't understand. The invasion is not the car. I just learned myself it's to be Oran. Oran! And the German fleet, on my suggestion, is waiting in Dakar for oh, nothing. Paul. And will continue to wait Paul, for nothing. Paul, it can't be. Do you know be. what this will mean to me? Do you realize what the high command will do to me for please, this? Please, please, Paul. Ruin. Perhaps, perhaps your latest information was wrong about Oran. No, 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 no. It all ties in. They, the Americans, wanted me to believe the... Gabi, what had you to do with this? Now what are you saying? I'm getting tired of your suspicions. One day you trust me, the next day you don't. You're French? What kind of French? Instead of questions, ask yourself this. Would I betray you, Paul? Not Germany, but you think. Look at me. Look at your Gabby and answer. I... I... No, of course not. Not you... You wouldn't dare. There may still be time to stop the Americans at Oran. I must get back to headquarters and let them know by radio. I should have done that right away instead of coming here. Oh, have a drink first. No, no, uh, later. I'll be back. It will not be you. easy for you to tell the high command this. A drink will fortify you. Mm. Yes. Perhaps. Perhaps you're right. One drink, then. <laughs> sat on the edge of the couch, his head in his hands. I remember thinking how very blonde was his hair, how large his hands. It was not difficult for me to drop half the L tablet from my purse into his glass as I poured the liquor over it. Here you are. Poor Paul. Pauvre petit. You look so tired. Drink. Where are you going? Put on the record you like. We've played it so often lately, Paul, that one of these days it will just rise up in protest. You're tired? Uh, no. No, why should I be tired? I must go now. I've had my drink. Hear my record through, then you will go. No. No, now. I must so good to me, Gabby. You love me. You love me very much. His head had fallen on his arms and rested on the table. The tablet had begun to work as I knew it would. I got the automatic pistol that had been given to me by the Americans and... shot him twice through his very blonde head. Report from Agent Gabriel Monet. Well, it ought to come any minute now. News of the invasion. I've had word that Eisenhower and Clark were in Gibraltar on November the 8th. 
I'll let you both know as soon as something comes through on the radio. Are you all right, Debbie? <laughs> Me, don't concern yourself. You did what you had to do. It took courage. Well, if I had thought about it longer, perhaps I would not have had the courage. You cannot know. I think I do. He meant a great deal to me. A long time ago. I killed him. Listen to me. I told you something once that the poet Goethe said. He also said this. Give up what perished long ago. And let us love what's living. Do you hear, Gabby? Do you hear? name. Robert's arrived. The invasion's begun. Do you hear? Did you hear, Gabby? Did you? Yes. Yes. Yes, I heard. And once again, the report of an OSS agent is closed with the words, Mission accomplished. A further adventure in black warfare is next week's Cloak and Dagger. Heard in today's story were Jane White, Barry Kruger, Leon Janney, Joseph Julian, Carl Weber, Raymond Edward Johnson, Guy Sorrell, and Bernie Gould. Script was by Winifred Wolfe. Music under the direction of John Gart. Today's true OSS adventure was based on the book Cloak and Dagger by Corey Ford and Alistair McBain. This has been a Lewis G. Cowan production under the supervision and direction of Sherman Marks. Stay tuned for the second big mystery, High Adventure, on NBC. From just before Memorial Day in 1950, The Trojan Horse, an episode of the series Cloak and Dagger. It came to you from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. It took radio quite a while to catch up to the Western dime novels, melodramas, operas, and movies that for decades were thought of as adult entertainments. For the most part... Radio's westerns had been targeted to younger listeners. Think of Hopalong Cassidy, The Lone Ranger, and The Cisco Kid, among others. But something was changing in the late 1940s, even before Gunsmoke changed everything in 1952. It's interesting to listen to the growing pains in a series like Frontier Town. It was a syndicated show that starred Jeff Chandler, born Ira Grossel, and billed in the episode we're going to hear as Tex Chandler. In retrospect, it's a show with an identity crisis. The story is sophisticated enough for a grown-up audience, but some of the elements seem to be directed to kids, notably Mr. Chandler's sidekick, played by Wade Crosby, inexplicably doing a W.C. Fields impersonation. From March 12, 1949, it's an episode of the series... Frontier Town. Frontier Town, the saga of the Roaring West. (laughs) 
Watertown. El Paso, Cheyenne, Powder River, Tombstone. Frontier Town. Here is the adventurous story of the early West, the tamed and the untamed. From the Pecos to Powder River, Dodge City to Poker Flat, these are the towns they fought to live in and lived to fight for. Teeming crucibles of pioneer freedom. Frontier Town! If you're ever in Dos Rios and need a lawyer, you might look me up. In a cow town, a frontier town, I don't need much of an office. But if you really want to find me, my one-room suite is upstairs over Cherokee O'Bannon's livery stable. There's a sign out on the side alley with my name on it, Chad Remington. Now, I don't want you to think there's not much for a country lawyer to do in Dos Rios because with the type of people who settled the frontier and whose places sprawl over it, we got all kinds. From the good and meek to the loud and leathery. But take just last week, for instance. Not only did I get a client, but I earned myself plenty of trouble. Came close to being shot to death. I guess the best place to start is when I was over at Judge Fillmore's house, chatting with the judge and enjoying a few understanding smiles and looks from his daughter Libby. Chad, no matter what you and I and Libby think about it, we've got about as much real law out here on the prairie as a porcupine has pin feathers. Well, you know, I don't always agree with my father, judge or not, but this time I must. Well, Libby, I, I don't disagree with you two Fillmores. But I feel we can't just accept the facts because they're facts. We've got to do everything we can to rid ourselves of gun law and substitute legal law. That's exactly the point I was making when I was up to the state capitol last week. Oh? The governor, as you remember, is not only a political associate of mine, but one of my oldest friends. Don't be surprised if Daniel B. Fillmore drops the judge from his name next election and substitutes lieutenant governor. <laughs> well... And I suppose the daughter of the lieutenant governor would consider herself slumming if she went out with a cowtown lawyer. Oh. <laughs> that is, if he asked her. Now, don't forget, Chad. As good a friend of mine as the governor may be, your father was the closest friend I ever had. It sounds like an explosion. Those sound like shots. Judge! Judge, so someone just held up the bank. Great day in the morning. The bank. Libby, you wait here. Come on, Chad. Let's get down there. Pussimaneous, pussyfootin' polecat. Or this time I'll beat your brains out for fair. Oh, Cherokee, you mean to stand there and tell me you captured this gunman inside the bank single-handed? My boy, don't ever let it be said that old Bannon's single-handed. It takes just one old Bannon to care for one row. But for a Bannon, it might take two. Stand still there, you varmint. Uh, then stop twisting my arm. Stand back, everybody. Here comes the chariot. Out of my way now. Out of my way. Move back. Move back here. Good thing you got here, Sheriff. But there's no hurry anymore. <laughs> One man army O'Bannon caught your man for you. Well, so you thought you could get away with holding up the bank all by yourself, did you? Well, I wasn't asking just to hear myself talk. Maybe he's not answering on advice of counsel, Sheriff. What's your name? Uh, Smith. 
Uh, John Smith. Huh. Why don't you just make it John Doe? Yeah, well, Smith, or whatever your name is, I'm hauling you down to the calaboose. And maybe by the time we get through with you down there, we'll find out who you are, where you came from, and your right name. So we can make it legal when we change your name to a number. Now, come on. <laughs> Cherokee and I helped the sheriff down to jail, then waited in the outside office while the sheriff tried to get a slightly better identification than the convenient name of John Smith. While we were there, knowing Cherokee, I took occasion to do a little investigating of my own. By the memory of my sainted mother, Chad, I'm telling you the truth, the whole truth. And very little of the truth. Now, Cherokee, I'm not saying you didn't catch the rascal. I'm not saying you're not a hero. All I'm saying is, since you didn't have a bottle of your Cherokee Indian rattlesnake oil with you, what did you drink to give you that much Dutch courage? On my honor, Chad, I was cold sober. Well, cold anyhow. But, uh... Uh, Yeah? Yeah? Uh, what? I must admit that, uh, I was just passing by the bank when that thieving no-good buzzard smith backed out and tripped over me, and when I landed on top of him... It knocked all his wind out. Oh, well, now we're getting places. And since we've gotten the true facts, counsel will excuse witness for... Oh, uh, well, Sheriff, uh, what did you find out? Well, nothing. All he'll say is his name is John Smith. Hmm. But there's a label in his shirt from a store in Houston. Hey, I thought I might telegraph down there with a description of him and see if we can't be identified. Well, say, that's a good idea. Well, like that's probably wanted on 30 charges in 30 states. Might even be a little reward money. Reward money? This is getting to look like the brightest day of my ill-favored life. Think I'll go down and send that telegram to Houston myself? Oh, no, you don't, Cherokee. As the man who caught the prisoner, you're staying right here and answering a lot of questions for me. (laughs) There you see, Cherokee. The wages of heroism is work. I'll tell you what. I'll stop by the Western Union office and send the telegram for you myself. The sheriff asked me to stop by and send a telegram for him. Why, sure, Chad, sure. What's it about? The fellow tried to hold up the bank? Well, you dabbed your rope right on it. I... What was that again, Chad? Oh, I forgot you've been out here in the cattle country for only a few years, Harry. To dab your rope on something is a cowboy's way of saying you hit the bullseye. Oh, <laughs> I guess I'll never get used to the way you west... Well, oh. here comes my wife with my lunch. <laughs> Hi there, Miss Cummings. You bring enough lunch for the two of us? Oh, hello, Mr. Remington. No, but I'll be glad to go home and get some more. Hello, darling. Hello, Martha. Bring me something good? Well, there's a piece of that pumpkin pie we had last night and some cold fried chicken. Uh, no, I, I don't mean to interrupt the menu, but I think so. I don't impede the wheels of justice. I'd better send this telegram to Houston and, and get along. Uh, to, to where, Chad? To Houston. <laughs> Maybe coming from Schenectady, you don't know that Houston's in Texas. Yes. Yes, we know Houston's in Texas. Hey, what's going on here? The minute I mentioned Houston, you both started to look as if you'd lost your last friend. Oh, no. No, there's nothing wrong. It's just that, well, there seems to be some trouble on the line to Houston lately. Oh, now, mind you, Harry, I'm not calling you a liar, but that's really a little flimsy. Harry, what's the use? Mr. Remington knows you're lying. Tell him the truth. Uh, now, Martha, you keep out of this. I'm not going to. We've had this thing hanging over our heads for years now, and I'm tired of it. Some nights, uh, I can't even sleep. 
afraid of my own shadow. Well, I'm willing to listen. What's the trouble with or in Houston? Go on, Harry. Well, nine years ago, I got thrown in jail in Houston. I was working for the railroad then as telegrapher. There was a holdup, and they felt Harry was mixed up in it. You weren't? Well, not mixed up the way they meant. I recognized Martha's kid brother, and, well, I could have stopped him, but I didn't. Uh-huh. And then what happened? Well, they sentenced me to seven years. After a year, I... I broke out. I see. I still don't understand your reluctance to telegraph. I... I don't know if you know much about us telegraph operators, but... Well, we all have a certain touch. Another telegrapher can recognize a man's fist just the way you can recognize someone's voice. You see, Mr. Remington, about ten days ago when Harry was sending a message to Houston... The man on the other end thought he recognized him and asked him if his name wasn't Harry Cheeseborough. Cheeseborough's our real name. Chad, I'm scared. I served a year I shouldn't have served. They're not going to put me back. Believe me, they're not. Now, look, Harry, as a lawyer and as a friend, the best possible thing you can do is turn yourself over to the sheriff. What? Listen to him, Harry. I don't want a red cent. I'll handle your case, and I'm as sure as a man can be that I'll get you off. Harry, do what Mr. Remington says. Living like this is just like living in purgatory. Now, come on, Harry. You and I are going down to jail. (laughs) Harry didn't like the idea, but once the sheriff reassured him that his chances of getting off were pretty good, he seemed to feel better. With our little jail full, the sheriff put him in the same cell he put the bank bandit Smith a little earlier. With my client now in jail, I went down to see the judge. Chad, I'm afraid you don't realize what you're asking me to do. Just because the governor happens to be an old friend of mine... Oh, sir, as a judge, I know you're interested in justice. The ends of justice wouldn't be served by having that man extradited. Chad's right, Father. Why, Harry and Martha Cummings are good people. There hasn't been a Sunday they haven't been to church and they've never done anything wrong in all their lives. I'm no judge of that. All I know is that someone did find him guilty and send him to jail. Besides, to be very frank about it, I don't especially like Chad's suggestion that I impose on a friendship. Oh, I didn't say anything about your friendship with the governor. I appeal to you as a judge and as an honest and upright citizen to have the governor quash any extradition proceedings should they ever be brought. Please, Father. Well, I'll see what I can do. But believe me, it's not entirely voluntary. Uh, Believe me, Mrs. Cummings. Please, not Mrs., a friend like you've been can certainly call me Martha. All right, Martha. Now, if you just lean on my arm, I think we can make the two blocks to the sheriff's office in no time. I just can't wait to see the look on Harry's face when he sees this telegram you've gotten from the governor. Oh, me too. From now on, neither you nor Harry's going to have to worry about Houston or any other town on the face of it. Chad, those shots! Yeah, Martha, come on. Those shots are coming from the jail. <laughs> Can you see? All I can see is some horses tearing out of town. Sheriff? Sheriff, what happened? Nothing, nothing, Hmm? nothing at all. That bank crook John Smith Cherokee caught just busted out of jail. Well, stop huffing and puffing. You'll catch him again. That's not too bad. Well, maybe that's not too bad, but Harry Cummings busted out with him. Harry? Harry broke out of jail? Well, he sure did, man. Well, 
Oh, this serves me right. I get the man practically pardoned by the governor, and what does he do? Breaks jail, makes a real outlaw of himself. Well, now there's no question about it. Harry Cummings is actually a fugitive from justice. <laughs> I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm just asking you to try and understand. As far as everyone was concerned, and that includes me, Chad Remington, everything I'd done had been wrong. Not only had I induced Harry Cummings to give himself up and go to jail, but when, because of it, he broke out again, the sheriff was against me, Harry's wife was against me, and most of all, Judge Fillmore and Libby were against me. Chad, how could you? How could I? Wasn't it enough that you came here first and talked Father into helping you? Did you have to come back now? Now that it's too late? I'm only trying to explain I'm to you I'm afraid both that... that explanations are no longer in order. In fact, I'm afraid any explanations that are due will be mine, trying to explain to the governor the meaning of this, this utterly ridiculous situation. I thought if anyone around us Rios would understand and have a little sympathy, it would be you two. Oh, so now you're going to try to turn things around and blame them on Father and me. The less said about this, the better off we'll all be. In other words, without a trial, without any suitable evidence, you're going to convict a man that just yesterday you agreed was decent and honest to the best of your knowledge. Chad, I resent your tone of voice, and I certainly resent your speaking that way to my father. Just a moment, Libby. I'm quite capable of taking care of myself. Mr. Remington seems to feel that this is a courtroom. And that as the attorney for the poor, downtrodden, misunderstood defendant, he's going to make an impassioned, oratorical ballyhoo on behalf of his client. I'm not trying to do Young anything... Young man, you could at least have the decency to wait until I finished. Yes, sir. I was just going to add that since this is not a courtroom and since your client is not on trial here, but since this is the parlor of my home, I'd appreciate your leaving. Oh, Father. Oh, let it go, Libby. This is your father's home. I'm certain he's not going to be any happier or any more satisfied until I've proved that Harry Cummings... Harry Cheeseborough. I'll accept the correction, Your Honor. Until I've proved that Harry Cheeseborough either was forced to break jail or was completely out of his head. You're not going to prove anything standing here. You're quite right, Judge. When I've proved something, I'll be seen, Libby. I hope. Huh. Cherokee, I appreciate you trying to butt me up, but it's a waste of breath. Now, just a minute, my fine, upstanding friend. Right here in my hand, I hold this little bottle of absolutely genuine Cherokee Indian rattlesnake oil. You say you want to know what this little article does? Well, I'm going to tell you. This astounding preparation not only cures dandruff and heaves in your favorite horse, but is sold with a money-back guarantee to cure morning-after collywobbles. <laughs> Blues that are bluer than the sky over the... All right, Dr. O'Bannon. I certainly can't give a testimonial for your universal panacea, but I'm ready and willing to admit that even without your rattlesnake oil, you can cure a case of blues, depression, and save a man from suicide. Now, Sonny Boy, you're talking. So let's analyze your problem. You wouldn't have a trouble in the world if we could find Harry Cummings and clear this thing up. Just as simple as all that, is it? Even simpler. Now look at it this way. He broke out of jail with that John Smith character. Hmm? 
Who caught John Smith in the first place? Well, Never mind, I'll tell you I did. And if I could do it once, I can do it again. Well, if you think I'm going to wait until the two of them stumble over your legs this time, you're greatly mistaken. But if you really want to help, throw a couple of saddles on two of those broken-down nags you rent here, and let's deputize ourselves a two-man posse to find them and bring them back. Find them? How do you propose to do that? I may be a lawyer now, Cherokee, but don't forget I was born on a ranch and brought up on a ranch. I can still read, sign, and cut trail. Now go on, get me a good horse and let's be going. Oh, Chad, if you only could find him. I just know that Harry never, never broke out of jail himself. Well, ma'am, he certainly broke out. Me and Chan ain't going to find him at all unless we get locomoting. <laughs> if that's the word. Martha, believe me, I'll do everything a man possibly can. Don't forget, you and Harry aren't the only ones involved in this thing now. God bless you, Chad. God bless you. All right, Cherokee. Get that horse turned around and let's get going. For a needle in a haystack? Well, that's what we were doing. To make it worse, the weather had turned as black as my mood. A cold wind had frozen the ground hard, showing about as much sign as a piece of smooth carved granite. But with Martha Cummings on my mind and Libby Fillmore in my heart, Cherokee and I pushed stubbornly ahead. Now I'm no man to complain, Chad. But this is one wild goose chase where I'm starting to feel like the goose. You look like a gone gosling. Well, there is a goose involved in this, all right. Several geese, in fact. Harry's, Martha's, and not the least of them, my own. Knowing the fair sex like I do, I can promise you Libby will get over it. And knowing the judge like I do, I can promise you he... Oh, oh, grain up. What in twisted up tarnation are you stopping out here for? Want to freeze to death? No, but I sure want to look at that briar bush over there. Briar bush? Hey, hey, Cherokee, look. Look what was snagged off on that briar. Looks like a little piece of black cloth. Black alpaca cloth. And if I'm not mistaken, the same black alpaca Harry Cummings sleeve guards are made of. Cherokee, I think we've found the trail. Now braid my hair and call me Pocahontas. You mean to say you spotted that little patch of black cloth out here in the middle of no place? And did it mean something? Sure does mean something. It means we're turning our horses and riding through that briar patch. But there ain't nothing beyond the briar. That is nothing but rocks. Nothing but rocks. And I hope a trail that'll lead us to that bank bandit and Harry Cummings. All right, this is good, Cherokee. Right here. Whoa, now. Oh, boy. Whoa, you elegant equine. So, nothing up here but rocks, huh? What does that look like? Looks like the entrance to a deserted mine. Except I don't know how deserted it is right now. Well, if those two are down there, and we go in after them with the light coming from behind us, we'd make two of the prettiest targets you ever saw. Yeah, you're right about that. Sure wish there was some way of finding out if there's anybody down there and what's going on.
Smith, I tell you, we'll starve down here. We'd have been better off staying in jail. Why don't you dry up? I should have left you in that jail to rot. Maybe I'd been better off rotting there than down here. We only had some air. You keep that up and you'll get air, all right. I'll ventilate you proper. Uh, you're just the kind of wood, too. If I'd had any salt in me at all, I wouldn't let you take me with you. Why, you... No! Now, keep that trap of yours shut. Look, the air down here is so bad. Why don't you let me see if I can't dig a little hole up toward the top? Just a little one. Just enough to get some fresh air. Yeah, all right. Gotta keep you amused like you would a kid. Can I... Can I use one of your spurs to dig with? Yeah, yeah, you can use anything. Only just shut up. Here. Thanks. Now maybe we can get some air. Someone digging inside the mine. It's not just digging. It isn't steady enough. Sounds more like... Like dots and dashes. Like like telegraph code. You mean it's Harry sending us a message? What is he saying? I don't know. They didn't teach telegraphy at law school. It convinces me of one thing. Harry didn't voluntarily escape, and he's risking his neck now in the hope that somebody will hear this and capture them. Yeah, fine chance, just the two of us. The entrance to this place, a regular shooting gallery. Cherokee, if you got the salt to try something, I've got an idea that may work. Well, it's got to work, and none of us are going to get out of here alive. If I hadn't wanted to save Harry, it would have been easy enough. We could have shot through the entrance to the mine and blasted them out of there. The shot might have killed Harry. So I had Cherokee climb on top of the entrance and hang there like a possum by its tail. Then I gathered up some dry brush, trusting to the wind to carry the smoke inside, set fire. With the smoke blowing inside the place, I just waited. Then after minutes, it seemed hours. (coughs) All right. All right, you got us. We're coming out. And keep your hands where we can see him. Watch it, Cherokee. I don't trust that Smith as far as you can throw a buffalo by its tail. I got you, Chad. Fell on him once, and I can do it again. All right, come on. Shake a leg, or you'll both end up in there barbecued. <laughs> All right, mister. You got us out of there. But you haven't got me yet. Oh, what a yellow spine varmint you are, Smith. Using Harry as a shield. Don't mind me, Chad. Get him. I'm afraid, Harry, that just talks easy. Come on. If you want horses, ours are over there. All right, mister. Get moving. All right, Cherokee, jump. Why, you... That's it, Cherokee. Now, hold on to it. Well, Cherokee, that's one way of getting business. Getting business? You bet. I can't think of a better customer now for your Cherokee Indian rattlesnake oil and Mr. John Smith. 
You might even do a wholesale business with him when he's up in his permanent home, the state penitentiary. I can't ever tell you how much both Harry and I owe you. You don't owe me a thing. Anything you might owe, you owe the judge for his influence with the government. Oh, stuff and nonsense. I'd say the real thanks are due to Cherokee. He's the man who knocked the wind out of Smith twice. Now, just a minute. Nobody could have done anything if Harry hadn't tapped out that message. So we'd know he was down there. <laughs> what would you have done if your life was at stake? No, sir. I'm passing the medal right back to Chad. Well, Libby, let's let them all stay here making speeches. I think you and I ought to take a little walk. We have a few things to talk over. I haven't much to say, Chad, but if you think you have, I can be an awfully good listener. Frontier Town, starring Tex Chandler, is a Bruce Ells production. Supervision by Joel Murcott. Story and direction by Paul Franklin. Music written and played by Ivan Dittmars. Be sure to be with us again this time one week from today for another fine action-adventure story with your favorite young Western star, Tex Chandler. Frontier Town came to you from Hollywood. A late winter episode of Frontier Town from 1949. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay will be my delight to sing again bring again the things you want me to I love to spend each Sunday with you